There are two wolves fighting in a man's heart. One is called love, the other, hate. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifjecker, a medieval historian, and today I am joined by another medieval historian, Professor Marita von Wiesenberg, to talk about the movie Pathfinder. Hello. Hello. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about uh, yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular movie? I am a associate professor at Xavier University in glorious Cincinnati, Ohio. My research focuses on sort of late medieval religion and masculinity and how within sort of Catholic narrative of the saints, masculinity is used to tell the story of sanctity, but what also this can tell us about religious men's and religious people's sort of ideation of masculinity. In my copious teaching time, which is of course always more than the research, I teach a bunch of courses, a lot about saints, but I am also, my first job ever was, I was 18 years old and I did a summer job at a Viking museum in Southwestern Finland. I'm from Finland. And so I never sort of been like, super into Vikings, maybe because that's not sort of a really big thing in Finland. Of course, it's maybe bigger there than here. Well, in a different way here. Here you have the kind of a lot more creepy historic scene, an accurate obsession um, Mm -hmm. with Vikings. Well, it's like closer to home in Finland. And so I never really thought about this. This was not my big thing. Like the 12th century was my big thing. I was really interested in in medieval stuff. I've also at 18, I knew everything there is to know about the Middle Ages and there's nothing you could tell me. So the Vikings were sort of like something new. It was before my period. Mm -hmm. Then I went to university, didn't study anything about Vikings, learned that in fact, I know very little about the Middle Ages and (laughs) could then dedicate my life to like learning more about it, uh, expertise, knowing more and more about less and less until you know absolutely everything about absolutely nothing. And then in graduate school, I was teaching fellow for a course on Vikings. I was head teaching fellow when the course ran again. I was research assistant for a book on Vikings. And I discovered that I actually know a lot about Vikings. And so now at Xavier, I teach a course called Vikings exclamation mark after the <laughs> Yale Vikings course. All Viking courses have, I think, globally been called Vikings exclamation mark. Yeah, I like the punctuation. I mean, if I mean to ask people, why do you take this class? They're like, uh, the exclamation mark. I always think that my sort of flagship courses are my courses on saints because I think saints are amazing. You've got people like, I don't know, drinking water from leprous baths and stuff. What could possibly be, you know, better than that? The earliest documented case of a pillow fort and the biography of a Hungarian saint. I mean, like, how could this not be the most exciting thing on the planet? But all the students think my flagship course is is Vikings, exclamation mark, Mm. which could be subtitled myth busting. Right. And so wanted to talk about this movie for a couple of reasons. One is that I, for my Vikings course, I have collected a list of movies, recommended movies, and I have a disclaimer that not all of these are good movies. Most of them Mm -hmm. are not good movies. In fact, and I love bad movies. Like if I'm like, oh, to my husband, I'm like, oh, we have got to watch this movie. He's like, no, I'm like, why not? Because if you want to watch it and you like it, it's going to be bad. (laughs) The combination of a movie that I find really satisfying in many ways Mm -hmm. and talking about it with an expert in portrayals of the weird Middle Ages, the long <laughs> Middle Ages, what the fuck Middle Ages, uh, was very attractive to me as an idea. And also, I felt like, nobody, you have not talked about this movie before, and this movie really deserves to be on this podcast. 
Absolutely. And of course, one of the inspirations for this podcast was listening to various bad movie podcasts. So when I had the delightful experience of having you and your husband to visit me in Memphis the other week, which will no longer be the other week by the time this is released, but is the other week at the time of recording. should be noted uh, that my husband emphatically did not watch the movie he went and got memphis style barbecue so we should probably do a plug-in for central barbecue was that it yes yes central Central barbecue excellent and then he sat and googled the real estate market in memphis while we watched this so that he would not have to be subjected to the horror (laughs) that is pathfinder the movie We watched Pathfinder the movie. A few details about Pathfinder the movie. It came out in 2007 and stars Carl Urban as Ghost, otherwise known as Aomer. Shirtless Aomer is Pathfinder. Yes. Is Ghost in Shirtless young Aomer. Yes. Shirtlessness is its own character that should be credited. I think it should actually character like ghost and the next line would be shirtless and it also is this really interesting phenomenon that i feel like there are a lot of things said in the medieval and early modern period where you can tell who the main character is by the fact that he has just less shirts than anyone else Right, right. And so here he's fully shirtless, but there's also, there's a lot of movies where it's the main male character. He's got his shirt open, like down, like halfway down his chest, whereas everybody else is buttoned up to the neck. Yes, and and, in Pathfinder, we have the extra bonus. He's shirtless, but then he's also wearing like the stereotypical Native American bad costume loincloth. So we also have a lot of naked thigh and half butt cheeks. Yeah, we see a lot of Carl Urban. Yes, we do. <laughs> the grayscale maybe helps a little bit to dim that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it also stars Moon Bloodgood as a character who is credited with the name Starfire. I will note she is never referred to by the name Starfire over the course of that movie. She's never referred to as anything except no, your she daughter. You. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know. you know, pronouns always important to pay attention to pronouns, especially right. if we have nothing else. So I will note she, uh, first of all, she is best known for Terminator Salvation. That is her most famous role. I also will note she is not actually a an actress of Native American background. Highly geshe. I totally thought, thought she was. Okay, I then. kind of did too. And then like something in the Wikipedia article, I was like, oh, okay. And then, yeah, did some digging and she is not. Okay. Well, I completely just assumed that Moonbloodgood, which is a great name and much better than Starfire, yeah. that she was Native American, but I am not an expert, so. Yeah, according to Wikipedia, she is not. I think just um, Bloodgood is actually like Dutch or something, and the moon part is like her parents are hippies. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Isn't it in, in uh, Carrie Pratchett's Good Omens, the main characters is named like Pippin Galadriel Moonchild or something like that. Right, right. Yeah. So that sort of thing. Yep. Also stars Clancy Brown as our lead Viking gunner, who you can also see, or at least, yeah, also never named, but you can also see or at least hear his voice in another pseudo-Scandinavian context, since he is the fire giant Surtur in Thor Ragnarok. I would never have known that. I only known him as the kind of antagonist Kurgan in the 1986 cult classic Highlander, which I look forward to somebody doing on this podcast. I have not seen that as of yet, but I have seen Thor Ragnarok, and that was the only thing that jumped out to me from his Wikipedia page. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yes. 
We also have Russell Means as Pathfinder, and this I will note is somebody who is actually a Native American actor, and he has uh, played a number of uh, very prominent roles in Last of the Mohicans, and he is in Pocahontas as uh, Chief Pahatan. Oh, I think he's also a, a Native American like social justice activist. Yes, or was, sadly. He actually died in 2012. Oh, oh so. no. Rest in peace, Russell means. Rest in peace, rest in power, insert whatever is appropriate culturally. Yes. Finally, uh, Kevin Loring as the character who in the film, I was like, oh, his name is the silent one because he's mute. Apparently, according to the credits, his name is Jester, which makes if no you say sense. so, I suppose. No. Okay. All right. Okay, then. Great. Yeah. Jester doesn't make any sense like as a as a yeah. as a name for the character, as a title or as a attribute to the character to me, while silent one or quiet one totally does because that's what he's called. But what do right. I know? Great. And in general, I will also note there are a variety of other characters who I'm not going to get into in just listing the cast because they're not people who I am super familiar with and who are, have, I would say, in some ways relatively small roles in the film and none of them are named at any point, including that I think there are definitely two male characters who don't really have personalities who I'm pretty sure are I like conflated into one person and might have actually been two people but again this is a problem with the fact that nobody has a name and very few people have personalities only uh, describes a lot of what's going on in this movie yes so we can now get into our first main section the enumeratio or recap and I'll start with just a very brief recap uh, to orient us and then we can get into some general discussion of the film. It begins with a Viking expedition that arrives in somewhere in North America and the sole survivor who is uh, I believe the leader's son is taken in by a local tribe who give him the name Ghost I guess because he's so white. We'll talk about this. Fifteen years later, another group of Viking raiders arrives and destroys Ghost Village and kills most of its inhabitants, accompanied and occasionally helped by his tribe's Pathfinder, which also is, I guess, a title, really not a name, whatever, Pathfinder's daughter, who is also Ghost's love interest, of course, because she's the only woman in the movie, and, well, no, there's one other woman, but we'll talk about her in a moment, and a mute member of the tribe who also insists upon joining him. Ghost uh, then manages to trick and eventually defeat the Vikings, leaving his people safe for the time being and earning the respect of his tribe. Yay! Yay! Total interesting validation of masculinity, male character development that yet somehow manages to not actually have character development. And also to ultimately tell the important story about how really the only person who is able to do anything is the one white guy. Right, hmm. exactly. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Great, because it's completely inconceivable that you would have a group of people where hunting and intertribal warfare is like a thing and actually who have a superior projectile weapon technology than yep. what the vikings were famous for would have actually been able to save themselves or even find their own butts with both hands and a map no we need carl urban without a shirt yes who is genetically able to uh, wield white uh, viking weaponry as we will get into magically magically <laughs> i mean genetic coding i did not do this i'm so impressed like <clears throat> Can I just magically know how to, like, I don't yeah. know, do downhill skiing just because, I mean, that's not actually a thing in Finland, so. I mean, it is, but it's not like Norway, like, cross-country skiing would be the thing in Finland, so, which I do know how to do. So my whole genetic metaphor thing totally fell flat and didn't work. I have certainly had people uh, ask me about, like, if I can help them with financial things because I'm Jewish, 
So. Oh, okay. I can't, by the way, I can't help you with your finances. Well, I've mental, no, I'll just scratch that off my desk, Sarah List. That's, I mean, yeah, wow. People do ask me yep. things about like, because I'm from Finland, they're like, oh, well, do you speak Russian? It's like, no. Or they'll be like, so hockey. But I do know enough about yeah. hockey that I can deflect any question and be like, talk to my husband, right. Canadian. <laughs> so we start with our opening crawl that informs us that 600 years before Columbus, there was an invasion of ruthless marauders in the Americans. You know, unlike Columbus, obviously. So unlike Columbus was all teddy bears and sparkles. I mean, really. Yeah. And they yeah. also talk about, I think the, the opening credits is something about they're you know, coming to settle. Yes. Which is the only time we get any hint of any kind of settling. Interest. They seem to have no interest in settling in no. terms of what we actually see in the film. And we'll get to that later, but if you think about sort of actual sort of Nordic Icelandic descriptions of the Norse coming to the Americas, there's actually an interest yeah. in, yeah. if not settlement, at least exploiting resources. Basically, they're not just out there to as bloodily as possible kill everyone else. So if they're talking about right. settlement, you'd think there'd be things like, oh, I don't know, women trade. or tools or trade oh my gosh trade how shocking <laughs> um but no settlement here equals mindless genocide. Yeah, yes genocide which again is arguably much more characteristic of columbus's expedition than it is of this one but we'll talk about that we'll talk about that more we also are told that the reason that they were not able to carry out their genocide is that something stopped them and that what follows is the legend and now and it's like the legend as if this is like a legend and presumably we know this yeah as if we know this and (laughs) i mean is this a legend told by native americans or is this a legend told by like i don't know the vikings who survived who went back home although we who have watched the movie know that the vikings did not survive which i mean i have no problems with that but like the legend and you're like okay so is this like the real bible and nobody people are like or is this like i don't know (laughs) well braveheart too begins with that like this like historians say this isn't how it happened but they're wrong it's like are we though are we i'm not sure we are are we really Mm -hmm. isn't it nice that we have people like mel gibson to tell us we're wrong mel gibson who reads how many languages, has how many right. skills in primary source analysis, like how mm-hmm. much... basically an expert. Right, I mean, obviously he spends all his free time sitting in libraries. And calling people sugar tits. It's, you know, basically divided between those two things. Sugar tits, reading like medieval manuscripts. Mm, I don't know. Which of these Some is going to give a person... anti-Semitism. You know? uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, what are these? <laughs> are... I mean, on the other hand, anti-Semitism is pretty medieval. True. On the other hand, I would hope that among medieval lists you'd have some colleagues who'd be pretty pointed about, like, that is inappropriate and you should just shut the fuck up. One would hope. One would hope. Mm, One would hope. We live in hope. There's a city in British Columbia called Hope, and so where you're saying, oh, where are you guys going? Oh, we're going to, like, I don't know, Calgary. Well, where's that? Beyond Hope. So you can actually say Beyond Hope is a geographic place (laughs) in British Columbia. (laughs) Relevance, zero. Very, like, Dante-esque, like, where we're basically (laughs) going to hell. Right. In Finland, there's also a location. No offense to Calgary. No offense to Calgary, right. But there's actually, in Finland, there's Jerusalem and hell or neighboring municipalities, which I also find really entertaining. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. We learned what the legend is. And so we see this white horse and we learned that there's this idea of this white creature as an Just omen. A foot, fleet of, was it, how did, did they express it somehow really? Fleet of foot and white as snow. Dun, dun, mm-hmm. Or white as ghosts. Mm. Mm. and that this will change everything so you think this is the horse but by the end is it the horse or is it a white dude (laughs) suspense is killing me we have a woman who is never named this will be a trend 
who shows up at the site of a massacre, which my understanding is that the Vikings have been defeated by another tribe. Yeah, and it's a little bit unclear because first when you see it, it's, it looks like a shipwreck because you have this like a dragon proud ship. Yeah. Uh, everything is also like gray. If you have like a phobia oh of God, gray, just do not gray. watch this movie, right? Everything is gray. So they've got this like shades of black and gray dragon headed ship and all these people. So really when I first watched this and I've watched this movie like multiple times, right? And it wasn't until this time that I watched it with Sarah and under her great influence, I realized that no, there's actually a massacre, but it looks like a shipwreck. Like the shipwreck, yeah. and it's kind of been blown onto the shore, and everyone's dead. And then later, we have a flashback from Ghost, when there we learn that it's actually a massacre. Right. While she's going through this massacre and finding, you know, some gray corpses and all of that, she That's what also I would do. a child. Yeah. Go through a, a alien ship and just like go through it alone and you know you have suddenly like corpses that shift and you know land in her face and she screams like I would totally Mm -hmm. continue going through there (laughs) yeah definitely but I guess it's good that she does because she finds a child who clearly has been through a lot Uh, we can tell that he's been whipped and he also is kind of freaking out he holds up a sword at her which he does not seem to know how to use at this point which I think is interesting and important important. she does convince him to drop it and takes him with her yay yay and at first her tribe is hesitant to take him in they describe him as an evil spirit that has never seen the sun he's white everybody he's very white I mean, I wonder to what extent that sort of emphasizes his whiteness or to what extent that sort of plays on this idea of, you know, the Northmen, Vikings. Right. I mean, if we're, you know, a discerning uh, audience who has not read the back cover of the DVD, right. we might not realize, uh, you know, that this is people from the North, despite right. dragon ships and, and stuff like that. But anyway. And our horned helmets cough. Except I don't think we've seen any of the horned helmets. Oh, we haven't? Oh, okay. I don't think at this point we haven't seen horned helmets, yeah. They agree that, you know, it would be really mean to not take in the child, and also that destiny means that they should take in the child and all that, so they agree to it. He is able to grow up and in this tribe. Oh, and we do also have the flashback, which indicates that the reason why he was whipped is because his bad dad, Viking dad, got mad at him because he wouldn't murder a child. Which is where we discover it's a massacre. Ghost refuses to murder a child. Therefore, is there some kind of innate goodness in him? And then he's whipped. But it's also fascinating. We see this after he sort of wakes up. You know, he's been, they've been told like, the, the council is discussing this and they're like, oh, they're expressing this fear that he's going to turn on into, you know, this evil marauder like his yes. father's. And then he's asleep and he kind of starts awake from this nightmare, flashback whipping, and he finds a sword, which of course they very conveniently left by his furs where he's sleeping, because that's totally what I would do. I would leave this like mm-hmm. alien sharp mm-hmm. object next to a, char- you know, child who's sleeping. Because he's like, what, 12 maybe? Certainly. And then he goes with the sword and kind of looks over his rescuers who will become his sort of mom figure and the mm-hmm. chieftain dad figure. And then he doesn't kill them, even though there's clearly some kind of a like a tension. Right. So instead he goes like an angstily. I mean, we're talking German hero metal record cover, angsty sword point down, leaning on the pommel by the fire. And then the, the Native right. American mother, woman who finds him is sort of like has this like, oh, poor child. And it's Yes. Angsty. And this is actually a moment that is slightly less gray. Right. But don't right. think yeah. it's a positive vibe. 
And I will also note that I think this is the beginning of this film having what perhaps unintentionally is a deeply muddled message about the extent to which genetics defines who you are. Mm -hmm. That is, I think that really is a pathfinder. Genetics. Yes. Yes or no. Genetics. Is it the solution to everything? Which plays in very problematically into some of the attitudes of particularly white power movements and white supremacists in the United States, but also other parts of the world have about like Vikings and genetics. And, and I mean, and that's of course just a tip of the iceberg of a broader obsession that we have about genetic patterning. Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. you'll show up someplace and people are like, oh, you're from Finland. You know, my dad's Swedish. And then I'm like, and then like, uh, my great grandfather moved here. I'm like, oh, as a European, that doesn't make any yeah, sense. Like I, I don't mean that statement. I know Swedish, right? right? But it's nice that you can pick from, you know, your however many ancestors and pick that this week I'm going to identify. I mean, some people, of course, it's mm-hmm. not just a week by week, but this like over-determinism of genetic like oh my gosh I did a you know what is it 24 and me test and it turns out the x percentage of my genetics is whatever and now I'm gonna like like Dutch and now I'm gonna start serving Gestampo movies when like I have a child or something like because that's a Dutch tradition which of course is really problematic like this genetic determinism and then considering we have a huge swath of the population for whom any kind of background has been removed through enslavement but Mm -hmm. anyway and don't have the option, right, of necessarily knowing precisely what their ancestors' traditions were. Right, exactly. Right. And yeah, there's this obsession with genetics, which we see in this movie very clearly. I find that very, in many ways, fascinating, uh, but also problematic in modern American culture. Like, yes, it's nice to do a genetic test to find out if my mm-hmm. baby is like, has. do I have to think about possibilities of my child having some kind of a genetic problem you know is, mm-hmm. is are they going to be able to be born healthy I mean these are these are interesting questions but then you have questions of what are we going to do with this information and right and that is of course part of this really broad iceberg of mm-hmm. genetic obsession which I I completely agree with you is really a big part of this movie I will say also my my parents have had their you know 23 and me things and you know my my dad is very smug at the fact that it was exactly what he expected based on his genealogical research and uh, my mother, initially, it was like, oh, you're like 98% Ashkenazi Jewish. And then they got back to her and they were like, no, actually, we like re-ran some stuff and you're just 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. But that can be a really good sort of interesting, that's a really interesting sort of, if you've done all this genealogical research, yeah. I mean, that can be really fascinating, interesting way of validating that as well or sort of figuring those things out yeah so it's a nice kind of confirmation of your research uh and so that's fun but you know I would say you know I mean that side of the family is mostly although not exclusively German and you know it's not like we like you know sit around and do any particularly German familial things my my cousin is really into um, genealogy and has traced all Mm -hmm. this and I'm sort of like yes he could totally do this but for me I just feel like and, you know, my mother's American, but I'm from Finland and like, sure, I have genetic matter that has come from Europe to America and then back to Europe through my mother. But I feel like that's, I'm from Finland. Genetics just doesn't matter, like, yeah. in that yeah. context. This having been said, I did inherit genetically a bad back and knees and stuff. And, you know, <laughs> that's genetics too. Right. Yeah. I, I inherited terrible ankles from, uh, from my father's side of the family. So. I mean, what can one say, right? But yeah. this is also nothing that would have impacted our ability to magically wield swords, for example, of course or, not. or magically of course sail not. ships or ride horses. So right. Of course maybe not. it would, maybe it would. 
Is there like mm. a Ashkenazi Jewish super weapon that you're not telling me about that you could banking? I think. <laughs> I'm like, I, I can't think of anything that isn't just like an uncomfortable anti-Jewish stereotype. Right. Mm. Magically know how to live in a city. Right. Yeah. We magically know how to live in cities and manage money for other people. Right. Right. Absolutely. It's my people. So we're now 15 years later and the child has grown up into gratuitously shirtless Carl Urban. And often half ass cheek, naked ass yes. cheek, Carl Urban as well. And yes. thighs, if you like thighs. But this oh, is yeah, more you've, of a chest you've got it all pretty movie, much. Really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you know, you've you've got a you've got a little bit. I mean, except for, you know, male full frontal nudity, but other than that, you've got a little bit of everything. Well, you don't have um, a lot of female nudity. I don't think you have any. No, that's female true. Nudity. I think that's you true. see I think you might see down to like halfway down our girl interests throat and her hands. Right. Like collarbone and cleavage. Although they do they do make out, they do have sex, and I think we might see her legs at that point. I think we see like a silhouette, like it's far enough away right. that you don't get much of a view. Right. Mm-hmm. So basically, this is a gratuitous semi-naked Carl Urban movie. If you were yes. in this for uh, Moonblood, good. No. You do not see anywhere near as much of her as you see of Carl Urban. His tribe is about to embark on what I think is supposed to be some kind of trading trip. And the Pathfinder is going with them, which is surprising because um, he doesn't normally go on trips like this. Well, there's also that, like, his successor died in an avalanche, so is he, like, going on this trip to meet other people so that the new Pathfinder can be designated, and, you know, who the Pathfinder is, you know, is this a shaman, is this, like, a chieftain figure, a person who's really good at, like, figuring out where's north and south, I mean, given that it's all gray and we never really see the sun, I think knowing how to figure out north and south is important, but my assumption is that Native Americans would be able to figure this out even without some kind of designated pathfinder, like, you know, moss on trees and all these kind of fun things. But so the pathfinder, his successor is dead, which is important. And he's going on this trip. And my vague sense is, I don't know, I guess he finds paths in terms of like navigating, but also maybe finds paths in terms of helping people figure out what paths to take. But I think I may be meeting the movie more than halfway on that description. Yeah, I think we're just supposed to be like, there's this dude, he's pathfinder, he's old. Yeah. Yeah, he's daughter. a big deal. He's not the chieftain because another person is the chieftain, but he's like the next biggest deal. Or possibly a bigger deal, but... Right. A big deal in a different way? I don't know. He's a big yeah. deal. And meanwhile, we see that Carl Urban, who uh, who has been given the name Ghost, mm-hmm. making him the only character in this movie with an actual name. Which we can... I think it's safe to say that this is actually his name. He's called Ghost, and the yeah. only other person that's called like as if it was a name maybe is like the quiet one or silent one that could be his name or it could be just a description pretty much everybody else i mean pathfinder i feel like that's really a title not a name and i think but it's very I clear that it is a, it's very yes. clearly a title and ghost is very clearly not a title every single other person in this movie in the credits they are named in the movie no one ever says their names this is not looking good for the if decker test i'm saying it isn't no he stares creepily at a woman who again does not have a name but we do know that she is Pathfinder's daughter. There is also a guy who's another, who's a warrior in the tribe who is clearly also interested in her. And he's kind of like glowering at Ghost and like refuses to shake his hand or something. I just call him alternate boyfriend because he, again, does not have a name. And they very clearly do sort of a classic setup of girl love interest and then alternate boyfriend one hero and alternate boyfriend two who may or may not die. I mean, this is the way all movies work. Either they end up like, 
not dying or like acquiescing and being like, oh no, she's better off with you. So now we know that this is going to happen and his chances of survival just plummeted by his flowering. Yes. They, the sort of young, the young men we learn are braves. That is their title, brave. Yes. And I feel there needs to be some kind of pompous music accompanying that, but I'm not musical. Ghost, however, is not accepted as one of the warriors or braves of his tribe because he is still too haunted by the demons of his past and that disqualifies him, I guess. Despite being the shirtless one who's clearly most stripped of the whole cast, he is not, in fact, a brave. And he's, but somehow he works himself into the, I don't know if it's a sweat lodge or if it's a tent where a Pathfinder's daughter is painting a red substance onto people's brows. So he's somehow like sitting in the circle, but nobody stops him before coming into the tent. There seems to be some kind of a ritual going on and nobody's like, hey, dude, you're not a brave. You shouldn't be here. It's like right. so he can't participate in the ritual, right. but and it's like he, this isn't interrupted until she's literally gotten some of the. I'm, I'm thinking it's like red okra or some kind of dirt, yeah. um, or right. paint made from earth being put on his brow. And I'm like, no, he's still haunted by demons of his past. And he questions his identity. His mother tells him that he is born to the dragon men, but that he is ours. And I do love that he has maintained his English accent. Mean somebody has to. <laughs> But there's some, yeah. Mm. I mean, he's from, of course, it's an English accent, not a Norse accent or like Icelandic right. accent or whatever it would be. Although when it comes to languages, it is sort of interesting. I mean, they're they're the you can kind of tell who the good guys are. It's who is speaking a language that the audience can understand. And so it's the Native yes. Americans who are speaking English, and in this case, with this sort of British Commonwealth accent. And mm-hmm. my, my I always imagined he was from New Zealand because I saw him in Lord of the Rings, which was filmed in New Zealand. So my logic is faulty there. I know nothing about Carl Urban. That is sort of interesting that they're speaking like the audience language, and mm-hmm. that's a really clear indicator that these are the people that we need to sympathize with. Although we already knew that. We already knew that we needed sympathizers then with them he is indeed from new zealand i just confirmed so he has a commonwealth accent yes the vikings return oh no say it isn't so they love some child slaughter i mean favorite is their favorite hobby is just slaughtering children i mean but because there's no monks in north america otherwise the children would be much safer because they just go slaughter monks i mean isn't this what the anglo-saxon chronicle and all these european texts are always saying about vikings they're slaughtering people left right and center obviously there's no christian monks in in north america so they have to slaughter children i mean what can you say genetic determinism as created by i don't know christian chroniclers stab first ask questions later Exactly, exactly. I mean, maybe the Vikings think that they are great. I mean, I'm, I'm superimposing on a script assumptions about European texts on Vikings, which of course doesn't make right. any sense because <sighs> that's not the, 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 I don't know what the narrative is for this movie actually, like from that perspective, like, okay. There are clearly a collection of stereotypes about Vikings that I doubt are coming directly from having read those texts, but that are probably indirectly influenced at some point by those texts. And if not by those texts, then by people who read texts about those texts right. in the 1800s who... Right. Basically, the same collection of narratives that's the reason that about 75% of students take courses called Vikings! Exclamation mark. Yes. And of course, speaking of a collection of stereotypes about Vikings, I love that not only are the Vikings wearing horned helmets, even their horses have horned helmets. I mean, everything has horns. Everything that's like not Native American has horns in this movies. And also I think it's worth mentioning, you have the stereotypical sort of Viking horned helmets, which are the horns are pointing up. But in this movie, they sort of curve down, sort of, which is 
except the horses helmets the horses sort of nose horn helmets things they're pointing up but the actual people's horns are like curved down and they're sort of like they're special it's like, oh, I mean, okay, it's 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 different. It's still wrong, but it's different. It's, so. yeah, exactly, exactly. We kill a lot of people. We have some dogs eating some corpses. That's always a good one. And we sort of introduced also to this sort of like the return of the Vikings. You have this girl, Pathfinder, and this girl. I mean, by girl, I mean not the girl, but a girl, unnamed right. teenager, a child. They're out, and they seem to not be together, although we don't discover that later. And then this girl comes across the kind of sudden movement jump scare movement dude with really horrible helmet and bad hair and bad teeth and skin I mean like the amount of black makeup these people put on like I am dirty black makeup, yeah it's right? one of the things you see a lot of in movies set in the middle ages is that not only do you have this grayscale filter you also have people who just like they just like put dirt on their face yes. like it's that they're just clearly trying to create the impression that people in the middle ages just walked around just literally encrusted in filth visibly constantly totally his mother is dead because of course she is of course of course because they come upon this girl and then they attack the village and of course they kill the mother what about this for unnamed mm-hmm. mother the village elder or the chieftain i'm not sure exactly who he is is also captured mm-hmm. and he's the one who is at least given the opportunity to engage in combat with them but of course he doesn't know how to use a sword so that doesn't go so well and it's also interesting everyone else is killed and then it sort of seems as it playing on this like oh we are cruel horrible Ha, 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 dudes. And so now that we've killed everyone and nobody else, now we can have our fun. And now we're going to kind of watch somebody kind of slowly torture or kill this dude with a sword, whom he obviously doesn't know how to use. Right. But they do claim that it is an act of honor that they are giving him death by the blade and the opportunity to technically defend himself, which I don't feel like makes a lot of sense in this context, but I guess kind of sets up something toward the end. Yes. Ghost arrives. Immediately, they, of course, comment on the fact that he looks different. And also, fortunately for him, he genetically immediately knows how to use a sword. He and knows how ride to use a, a horse. shield. Yes, and ride a horse. I mean, this is amazing. Later, we sort of get this vibe. I mean, we got this vibe when he was told, like, oh, you can't be a brave. That he takes his so the sword, this, you know, the sword of, that came from the ship, and he's, like, swinging it around looking like he knows what he does so maybe he's been like practicing it in some glade someplace i mean in a world before youtube you could just like take this tool and kind of become this magic guru no this is definitely a genetic you are a viking and therefore you magically know how to use a sword and shield and ride a horse yes because there's there's certainly there's zero explanation in the movie for the shield or the horse the sword he at least had a sword but there's nothing that leads us to think that he was you know consistently trying to practice with or use the sword based on vague memories he had of other people doing so or anything no so yes it makes no sense that only that him and only him can perfectly wield all of these specifically viking weapons absolutely it's either genetics or it's magic but later in the movie we discover it's like the genetic aspect genetics i should i should start a bank i mean just (laughs) totally so he is able to mess up one of them in combat he like cuts up his eye basically he also snowboards away on his shield to escape that is a moment of beauty um (laughs) I can accept someone raised in a cold climate with mountains, kind of knowing how to quote unquote snoreboard on these, where exactly these mountains are on the Eastern seaboard is a little bit of a mystery. I don't know. But 
And also, of course, it's one of these classic scenes that you have in this sort of movie where he snowboards like off a mountain into a lake. And it's like, you would be dead. Mm-hmm. You would have broken every bone in your body when you hit the water. And then die a hypothermia. Yeah. Although seasons are a little bit weird in this movie. Like you can be in winter and then suddenly it'll be like all muddy and like rainy and drippy. And so maybe that was like why he could survive is that it was like winter in the mountains, but like, I don't know, spring or fall or something in the lake. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. The seasons change every like two miles basically in this, uh, in this movie, it seems. Yes. They certainly do seem to, but as long as it's gray, right. Seasons and hypothermia are, I think, modern inventions according to. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Of course. Silly me. The Vikings are very grumpy about this turn of events. They do sew up the guy's eye. Wait, okay, they sew up the guy's eye, but then doesn't he, after that, just murder him for fun because he's mad that he screwed up? Or yeah, murder somebody he, else? Yeah, no, I think it's like there's this other guy who's a little bit hesitant about sewing up the eye, and then the goon, not the chieftain, is like, ah, just do it, but then he kind of jabs him or something. And then he just murders him, and you see this, like, very thick yarn it's not even thread needle on thread it's like a darning needle and a and yarn hanging from his face and then he kind of sews it up himself <laughs> but on the other hand i mean manly men know how to do the needle point and sew so maybe he can manly man exactly. sew his own face up right there you go they are not speaking english they are what what language are they actually speaking and you're no, supposed to be speaking like everything Norse, i but... saw on this was that they're speaking icelandic and there's definitely okay. moments that i'm like yes that that is Icelandic. And, you know, they actually even call the Native Americans with the term skreling from right. um, the Vinland sagas. But then there's other moments when I'm like, that sounds really German. Hmm. And with sort of sentence structures, I'm like, that doesn't sound like Icelandic to me. Either it's, they tried to kind of like general, I mean, it could be just that the different actors have different accents because they yeah. have different linguistic skills. It could be a case of, I mean, you see this in a variety of, of movies, like for example, the 13th Warrior, where you have actual Nordic actors and they're just speaking their own languages, which is actually pretty reasonable to think that people would have spoken their own dialects if they're mutually intelligible. I mean, I certainly can have a conversation right. with somebody from Norway and Denmark mm-hmm. and so forth, like speaking our own languages. I mean, it's increasingly hard because it's just easy you just slip into English. So it could be that you have actors from various Germanic speaking places. It could be just accents. There's a variety of things that could be going on there, but they're speaking, let's say Icelandic. I think that overwhelmingly it is Icelandic, but then there's moments of better or worse grammar slash pronunciation, especially pronunciation, which is fine, which is fine. I have no judgment, no judgment. I tell my students, as long as we know who you're talking about, don't worry about pronouncing those names. And I will say, I uh, I just looked this up to confirm the actor who plays Gunnar is from Urbana, Ohio. Yay, Ohio. So I would not assume that he knows any of these languages necessarily, or at least I certainly would have no reason based on anything I'm seeing about his background to think that he is a native speaker, certainly, of any of them. So I would assume that he at least is an American trying his level best with something that's given to him as like phonetic pronunciation that honestly you kind of wonder who did this do they have google translate in 2007 like I mean with the it's a ridiculous budget considering the overall movie and its quality it has a ridiculous budget hopefully they hired a proper so translator they have a translator and maybe an accent coach and I feel like yeah. Gunnar did not have like the worst sort of vaguely Icelandic Germanic accent mm-hmm. some of the henchmen were like they're the ones and I'm like wait that sounds like German anyway I am not a linguist this is not my forte this is not my expertise they're clearly not speaking English it is something right yeah 
Right. I'm sorry. I was just putting you on the spot in part because I don't know any of these languages because I study the Western Mediterranean and all of my research languages are Romance or Semitic languages. And my research languages are Romance. I mean, some Germanic, yes. And also Romance, yeah. But yeah, you have some, you have much more of a background in Germanic and. I'm a native speaker of modern Swedish. Yay, me. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And some others as well, but yeah. Yeah. Is Swedish considered a Germanic language? Yes. I realize I don't actually Swedish, know. Swedish, Danish, Norwegian, Icelandic are all Germanic languages. Then in okay. Finnish, which I'm also a native speaker of, is a Finno-Ugric language and like not yes. related to, it's like a secret superpower. It's like such an alien yes. language compared awesome. to Germanic languages. But you know, yes. uh, Estonian people will be like, oh, but you must understand Hungarian. And I'm like, you realize that like Italian and English are closely yeah. related than Hungarian. I mean, I literally... A good friend who's Hungarian and you know being over there and mm-hmm. like she's talking to her kids I can only from context tell what they're yeah. talking about otherwise I have no clue what these people are saying so how languages I mean most people just don't know how languages actually work which is fine right. um but, right. but Finnish yeah, is definitely I, like out there my family several generations back were Hungarian speakers oh cool Hungarian is such an interesting yeah. and neat language yeah on one side of my mom's family that's the last place that they were before coming to the United States do you feel like you should just be genetically predisposed to just be able to magically cook any kind of bell pepper goulash, or pepper, goulash right. just like without any recipe, just magically know how to do it? And Hungarian, yeah. of course. And speak Hungarian, it, absolutely, obviously. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah. if your life was written by the same people who scripted this movie. I would just pop into Budapest and all of a sudden I'd be fluently speaking Hungarian and cooking goulash in a week. I could probably cook some goulash with a recipe, but. But, but, but according to whoever wrote the script, you would just magically know it. Genetically know it. There would be no recipes, you know? I mean, The goulash is has, in my blood. Exactly. Ghost has no like sword manuals either. True. Ghost goes and manages to reach, and I guess it's another tribe, but that's also where the survivors from his own tribe, which include Pathfinder and uh, his daughter and uh, trading like a couple party. of these other warriors. Yes, right. Yes. Yeah. So the people who are in this trading party weren't in the village when everybody got killed. And so uh, they're now, uh, yeah, with this in this other village. And uh, so uh, he joins them, uh, they get him healed up, and he tells them all of this, like, lore that he's learned about how the Vikings work, which he, I guess, remembers from when he's 12? On the other hand, his because he's basically saying that they, all they know is murder, all they know is slaughter. I mean, arguably, that is the only thing he's seen, but he, he does sort of make it not just like, this is what they did. He's like, oh, and this is all they know. Like, this is like, so maybe it's from what he remembers as a child. It's certainly right. what everyone has seen so far. And he's very much like, you can't, you know, the Braves are like, oh, we're going to go and kill them all. And he's like, you can't, you cannot. And then he shows them the weapon and he, the sword. And, right. and this is the first time people seem to be like, have any interest in the sword. And because well, he very much is like, he, you know, take, somebody's holding up maybe like a spear that, you know, has like a bone or something top of that, I guess, most be made of wood and he just reaches out with the sword and like slices the spear in half and is like see you're useless right and your weapons are useless and i'm sitting there thinking bows and arrows like i don't know about you all learned yeah, about native right? americans when you were kids but bows and arrows were like a really big thing i do yeah. not know how many bows and arrows i forced my father to make based on about 50 percent lucky luke comics that had native americans mm-hmm. and 50 percent lord of the rings that's my childhood in a nutshell <laughs> So it's like, okay, we're really going on this like weird, like guns, germs, and steel technological narrative. So that's a choice. Guns, germs, Um, and genetics. 
Yes. And uh, we also have this like weird scene where they're like in a cave and they're attacked by a bear. And he's like, see, I've got a sword. I can kill the bear. Yeah, right. And there's because I mean, it's sort of a little bit unclear, like what's going on in this cave? Or is the trading party like resting there? Or is this just anyway, but there is this sort of moment that is sort of important later, because he is like, oh, and I can kill the bear because I've got sword. And then that doesn't quite work. Because what ends up is Pathfinder and Pathfinder is like, old. He's like, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, old is in this context, that's what he is. He does this sort of like bowing down in front of the bear. And you're like, oh, his secret magic pathfinder skills. And no, the bear attacks him and he lifts his spear. And then the bear impales himself on the spear. And this will be important later. The pathfinder will appear to ghost in a vision. And no, not a vision, just as he's about to be drawn and quartered by the Vikings. If you are not strong enough to kill the bear, use the bear's strength to kill it. Yes. And so yes. this is what Pathfinder does in the cave is that he uses the bear's strength to kill it. He's like, he knows that when he's like, seems small and whatever, mm-hmm. I don't know, breaks eye contact or something that the bear's going to attack him. And then he just lifts his spear up and end of bear. Yay. Right. The Vikings, meanwhile, are on the trail. And there's this hilarious bit where so there's some snow with, I guess, ghost blood on it. And they like give the snow to the dog to sniff and lick. So the dog will catch his scent. But then also Gunnar like eats the blood covered snow. It's like, why? What? Why? What is happening? If there's one thing you teach foreign exchange students in Finland is don't eat the yellow snow. I suppose nobody taught Gunnar don't eat the red snow. He just, he just missed that. He, he just, just loves that. blood so much. Yes, that. he just loves blood. He's just going to eat the blood. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently this is, maybe it makes him like better able to, I don't know, ingest. Maybe he's trying to ingest like ghosts, magic, knowing how to ride horses abilities. I don't know. But they're definitely so on the trail. Ghost then tries to go off on his own so that he alone can fight the Vikings because only, only he, another white man with a sword could possibly defeat them or even <laughs> possibly survive. Right, possibly. Because at first he's like, no, and nobody can. And then he goes off in a different direction from the main group. This The main group that there's sort of leader is like, okay, we're going to yeah. follow Ghost's advice and we're just going to hoof it. We're just going to get the fuck out of here. And then Ghost goes in a different direction. And it's like unclear if that's like, oh, he's going to lay like an other path. No, it turns out that he's going to set up to single-handedly yep. kill the Vikings. Like only he the white dude can. Yep. He is followed by one person. So this is the character referred to as Silent One, who is mute. Do you know the movie Harry and the Hendersons? I do not. It's this, I think, Sasquatch who joins up with a family. And then at some point they realize that, you know, he's better off if they send him back to live in the woods instead of keeping him to live with some, like, I don't know, suburban Canadian family or whatever they are. I have not seen this in a very long time. And like do this like, go, go away. We don't want you anymore to make him go into the woods for his own good. And that's basically, (laughs) that's basically what Ghost tries to do with Silent One slash Jester, which is allegedly his name, but it does not work. And he still, he still follows him. It is an unsuccessful Harry and the Hendersonsing of this man. And then we eventually will see them setting up like traps and things. and, And Silent One is clearly like, helping out with this process so despite not being a fully fledged character as you know disabled people clearly cannot be which is one of my pet peeves with this movie he's still instrumental in helping build this like they booby trap a whole village in all kinds of super interesting ways which becomes important of course later when we have the official standoff and i will note that although I would argue that nobody except for Ghost is actually meaningfully a character in the sense of having development or personality. 
Maybe also Pathfinder. Pathfinder has the person. I think the girl also have moments, sort have of. moments of personality, but there's no real character development. Silent One is like my favorite character. So I like that they're competent. Like they're not, they're characters that are very much not developed in as full a way as they should be, but both the Silent One and Girl mm-hmm. are competent at yes. least. And yeah. I appreciate that. I will yes. give credit where credit is due, such as it is. Speaking of girl. Oh, well, first he has, he has a dream about Pathfinder. And it's this dramatic bit where Pathfinder tells him, you know, the sword can cut both ways. And then he like falls on the sword and stabs himself. But, and then, you know, he wakes up in a panic. And, but then Pathfinder's daughter shows up. Yay. And Pathfinder's daughter has followed her. Later, we also discover that Pathfinder has followed them. It's, it's a lot of people are sort of following. For somebody who's told people to go off and then he's gone to lead off the Vikings and set up booby traps, there's an awful lot of people who follow him. For a variety yeah, of everybody reasons. has followed everybody him. as yes, well pretty much what <laughs> has a title at least mm, well except right, the chief well. the sort of the, the new chief doesn't right yes but i think basically all of the people who are from his original tribe yes. basically i mean it just actually makes sense in that like they're the people who you know all of their families presumably were killed i mean alternate boyfriend presumably has like parents or siblings or somebody or something who are dead what is Alternate boyfriend, is he from Ghost's tribe or is it when these two tribes that oh. kind of met? And I, my, my understanding was you had Pathfinder's tribe and his mom and his dad is the, the chiefs in there. Then you have this other tribe where you have the girl and alternate boyfriend and Pathfinder, that they were actually not oh. in the same if not tribe or, or family group within that they are actually are from a different groups. And that's oh. part of the Part of the sort of like alternate boyfriend is like, I have the hots for my chief, for my my path. I mean, it seems to Pathfinder is like, maybe like the tribes, but then they travel in family groups. Right. Alternate boyfriend is in the same like family, like not family, like group. I feel like I should But he does seem like he knew Pathfinder's daughter already, right? I mean, him creepily staring at her is not the first time they've met. She knows him. And I think it has to, I mean, that whole like these different kind of groups I feel like I should run across the hallway and ask my colleague who works on Native American (laughs) history and be like so dude how does this work they're like a nation like I don't know okay and then you have like different groups within them and so they would have interacted trade and known each other and like be familiar and then it's one of those like oh and now we're gonna kind of get together and meet up and do stuff like we always okay. do there's some kind of like a coming together ritualistically celebration yeah. children are like oh quiet one yay play with me and then quiet one plays music so he's clearly not deaf but he is mute mm-hmm. and then there's that whole like staring daggers establishing rivalry right. thing and then one group goes off oh, and does right. something so okay. maybe it's like they were just passing and they're like oh like let's go hang out with these people who are over here because we always do that i think there is like they do know each other but they are from different mm-hmm. groups so I don't think it is okay. the people who are originally from Ghost's group who follow him, except okay. I think the silent one is from his his group. Right. Yeah. Anyway, so he and Pathfinder's daughter have sex. Silent one is, I guess, just like sitting in the corner awkwardly during this. Probably having do. a cup of coffee off screen and wondering why he agreed to the job. Although, you know, mm-hmm. I do like his character. Much more mm-hmm. interesting than Ghost, that's for sure. Absolutely. I totally ship the silent one and the girl, actually. Yeah, okay. I mean, honestly, anybody but Ghost. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm not sure about Gunnar either, really. Well, no. Uh, well, no. Mm, and of course, lot. you know, and also, of course, I mean, the big problem is that they, 
I mean, really, like, there's, she's the only woman, so all of them are essentially stuck being celibate unless they get with her because there are no other women left. On the other hand, you have clear evidence of Native American two-spirit, so, you know, you don't have to always Mm -hmm. go for the girl. Mm -hmm. Um, True. You know, and and, in Viking, which is basically pirate, you know, there's a good, solid evidence for non-Norse pirates and homosexuality, sort of Mm -hmm. in the Caribbean and, you know, the Chinese Sea and stuff, so, yeah, I I don't know. That's true. So certainly not celibate necessarily, reproduction potentially Mm -hmm. an issue, but yes, the very good point that yes, not necessarily, they're not necessarily doomed to celibacy, just to uh, perhaps dying out rather quickly. Right. But this having been said, the Vikings are clearly not interested in settlement in this movie. They have no interested in women they're considering how important for uh vikings and i mean i believe that and correct me if i'm wrong that in most people's minds vikings engaged in slavery and that certainly is is the reputation that they have but they have these uh these vikings have zero interest in any kind of enslavement uh any kind they are just interested Mm -hmm. in killing they just want to kill everybody right and in particular i noted that there's this big emphasis on specifically child murder yes which struck me because i would think that like you know, especially children who are kind of 10 and up, I feel like would be very desirable slaves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because they're just old enough that they can work, but also they probably don't really know how to fight. And so you don't have to like worry too much about them at the moment. You might think that they might be more tractable or hope that they could be at least. Yeah, I'm best familiar with Norse slavery on the Russian rivers. And mm-hmm. there is definitely so the young women, particularly, um, I mean, right. enslavement from North, North uh, Western Russia and Eastern, Eastern Finland area continues right. into like the 1600s from Poland and that, yeah. that whole area, the Eastern Baltic. And young people would, I'm trying to remember what Yuka Gorbela's book ta- talks about, like the ages, particularly yeah. yeah. interested in through the Eastern trade route, slave route, right. which survives so much longer than in yeah. Western Europe. This is, of course, mm-hmm. North American. There, there's no interest in, in any kind of enslavement. Or like, we don't see them, which is actually pretty good. There's not a whole lot of interest in rape. Right. And I do appreciate that. Although, of course, there is with the, well, so there's, there's not enough women to rape. Well, that's true as well, because there's, like, the mom, and then there's, like, kids, and then there's, like, the girl. And there's sort of weird sexual, you know, stuff going on with the girl later. Yeah. But they're they're these, and they're not really interested in the pillaging. They're just interested in the genocide. They're just murder. Right, it's just the genocide. But, yeah, no enslavement whatsoever. And, yeah, and, of course, I mean, in in the area that I look at, Mediterranean slavery was disproportionately enslavement of women who are valued as domestic servants, who are valued as well for their not consensual, sexual, and reproductive labor, as well as then if they were impregnated as wet nurses. And so there is this focus, really, on women as slaves. And I don't know if that's exactly the same in this context, but certainly like it's would be something to think about but of course there yeah. aren't any women so. yeah no they're not i mean and the north also is engaged in a lot of female slavery like um, right. a, a, speaking of genetics a huge portion mm-hmm. of like this female genetic pattern in iceland for example comes from ireland and those could have been of course i mean the vikings were pretty fluid when it comes to like who gets to yeah. be quote unquote a viking like in, in mm-hmm. the united states were pretty fluid about who gets to be a plumber so there could have been irish who kind of joined the migration up to iceland but Probably it's women who were imported to Iceland for either family connections. There's a lot of connections with Ireland. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of family connections. So it could have been like just intermarriage, but a lot of it was probably unconsensual, reproductive and sexual labor. This having been said, some of the most famous Icelandic women originated in what we would today think of as the British islands. So Mm -hmm. 
Right. Anyway, yeah. Regardless, Gunnar and his posse of dudes. Yeah. There's not enough women for yes. them to rape. Poor babies. No. no. Lucky Poor women things. not to be there, though. Right. So Ghost begins his one-man guerrilla war, or I guess, you know, kind of two-man, two I mean, because mm-hmm. Silent One is helping. Well, so. I feel it's like one-man war, and then you have, like, support crew. Yeah, exactly. Because you have both the Silent One and you have Girl, who are doing things yeah. like propping up sharpened stakes and then hiding. But they're not right. in the war, they're support no, crew. he's really the only one in the war. He also at some point gets a hold of some Viking armor, which we'll talk about that later as well. But that he also inexplicably knows how to put on the full armor. And of course he does. These other magically. Things. He magically Genetics. knows how to do that. Like, totally. Genetics. Mm-hmm. Genetics. <laughs> Genetic ability to do buckles. Yep. And magically just knowing how to, yes. Totally. I mean, actually, like, I will say, like, Jewish kids who are, you know, doing things, like, around their bar and bat mitzvah time would be very surprised to learn that genetically you should know how to put on complicated items of clothing, because if you are observant uh, Jewish, then during weekday prayer that you are supposed to wear to fill in. So it's essentially this, like, box with leather straps mm-hmm. attached to it. Right. And there's one on your head, and then there's one on your arm. The one on the arm is a pain to put on. So, you know, really, I don't understand why my genetics didn't show me how to do it properly. I mean, really, Sarah, how is that? Are you sure the 20 however many in me was showing, like, Ashkenazi Jewish (laughs) My mother's 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. Maybe maybe it's because of the intermarriage, you know, screwed up the... uh, I mean, right. I lost the tefillin putting on gene. (laughs) I mean, you just just magically didn't know how to do that. Like, obviously, because... Genetics tells you how to do this because Ghost mm-hmm. genetically just knows how to put on armor. Yeah. Yep. We have some fighting. The other people show up, including alternate boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And he is the one who, who then he, he gets stabbed and then is like, you have to protect her for me. And it's like, come on. It's that like this was like symbolic, like, right. And it's just like this, like, ugh, okay, like, yeah, fine. You need to get like permission and like validation from this other dude to like, for your really, it's like, come on. I, hate, I just hate this stuff so much. And it becomes this one of the, it's not like about her choice. Like, Oh, no. you know, I mean, she's out there. She follows this other dude. And so there's this also this moment where uh, alternate boyfriend is like, oh, I'm going to go off. And then somebody else is like, you're just following her because she's following right. Ghost. And it's like, and then he shows up and it's just like, oh, you have to like, you have to protect her. And it's this whole like, as if she doesn't have agency. As if she, if she actually, you know, yeah. she goes and she follows Ghost and she... Mm-hmm. Stays and helps, and she's, you know, fighting these, she gets into these, I mean, mostly she's a support crew, but there's also some, you know, fighting with Fights these, a bit, yeah. Which, you know, she's, she's not And she's just competent, a, which is, yeah, I appreciate. Absolutely, absolutely. And yet we have to have these guys be like, no, you get to, I mean, as if she doesn't have a choice in this. And it's just this typical, you know, guy hits on you in a bar and you're like, oh no, yeah. I have a husband. Because you saying, no, I right. don't want you is obviously not enough so it's part of that whole toxic Mm -hmm. masculinity crap that's going on there yeah and at this point it's like she's already chosen ghosts like this has nothing to do with you Mm -hmm. you are completely irrelevant to this whole situation but okay so yeah but he needs to be like you have to protect her for me it's like no no you you're you're irrelevant and also about to be dead and there's this really sort of interesting moment there as well like they've set up this whole pit which is covered by like a loose lattice of kind of branches and stuff. Mm -hmm. And these braves who have decided to kind of abandon the trade unit and come and like kill all of them, which, you know, obviously alternate boyfriend only wants to do because 
you know, hashtag toxic masculinity, and then Ghost is trying to lure the Vikings over this pit so they'll fall on these sharpened mm-hmm. stakes. And instead, the Braves come out of the forest and run into the pit, and so they're actually a lot of them are killed or they're killed right. initially in initial wave by this trap set up by ghost and we right. see no guilt or remorse later we just see this like oh no you're like killing and it's like oh no are you killing yourselves in my trap or is it like oh no you're ruining my trap i'm gonna leave up that to you know the individual mm-hmm. but there's definitely sort of a, a moment of if they had just showed up and say hey ghost we just had to come and like oh you're fighting them let's all fight together instead it's like these competing men alternate boyfriend and his braves and then ghost and presumably silent one although he's completely marginalized and this sort of like ways and of course again it's like not the the native american and their fighting abilities and their sort of ability of look i don't know knowing the trade and being like really good hunters that enables them to protect their people no it's white dude with his genetic ability to put on armor and like dig booby traps that kind of gets to save the day right and well, the booby traps, though, I do wonder if that's actually something that's coming out of uh, things that he would have, you know, actually it would have made sense for him to learn uh, mm-hmm. growing up with this tribe, that that would have been something that the, that like the Native Americans also did and knew how to do. And yes. so then it's this weird, like, well, look, this is like ultimate white dude, because this white dude knows all the white dude stuff, but is also also like culturally appropriated this stuff from other people. Right. Which I mean... That would make sense that he would he would know that because using yeah. traps and sitting here thinking about the cave scene, is there any kind of effort there when they're trying to capture the bear that would kind of indicate to us in any way that this because obviously building traps right. and things are yeah. you know Native Americans knew how to do this clearly. Yeah. Uh, but if there's any kind of setting up for us, like oh, this ability to learn, or is it all just like this magic genetic? knowledge right i don't know i certainly wouldn't say it's set up but i think it makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah oh right and there's also this bit where they're in this other cave that has like a lot of like decorative skulls happening you gotta love the like skulls as household decor and as handy weapons i think girl actually like hit somebody over the head with a skull at some point or in the balls but there's definitely there's hitting hitting with skull like imagine bowling ball and then smashing that's when they're sort of being like, I, I forget to do like licking her neck or some kind of other like really gross, overly sexual. There's a thing. lot of, yeah, like near rape and or murder bits mm. with her. Like too, too many in one scene, I think. Right. right. What is effectively like one extended kind of battle sequence. And I don't get a feeling it's like a sexual, I mean, of course, rape never is about sex. It's using right, it's power, power, but, but there's this sort of like, that it's not about power over her. It's like, oh, they're doing this to annoy Ghost because clearly yes. she's like the love interest there. Well, and of course so, that's what rape is about. Rape what, is about it is exerting about power over other men. Right. And so that is also thing I think yeah. it's really important to note that this is really overtly and maybe like in one way kind of like, you know, good for you for making this really obvious. Like this is not about power over this girl that this is about men because that's what it so often is really about but it doesn't feel like the movie is necessarily commenting on that as opposed to i mean because it's also like it never at any point does the film demonstrate any interest in acknowledging her 
trauma of having, you know, cause it's obviously it's being enacted on her body, even if it isn't about her, but it never ever engages with how she feels about any of this because she's barely a character. Right. It's only about how Ghost feels about it, which is then just kind of like reifying this dynamic of like, yes, I mean, of course it's about men and only the men matter. So that's how it should be. Right. But only if you are an able-bodied man. Because, oh, yes. right, I mean, this quiet one, he gets killed because obviously yep. a disabled person cannot be a real fully fleshed out or surviving character. No. And this genuinely upsets me. Yeah, no, I agree. And also his death, too, is really about motivating Ghost as much as anything else. And that's also the moment where we see maybe some of the best acting in the whole movie, movie is when the quiet one dies. And mm-hmm. he problematically has a sort of like childlike, oh, I'm dying moment in sort of his friend's arms which on the one hand I don't know I've never held uh, an adult when or you know any human being when they've died maybe there that makes sense to have this sort of childlike but for me I also can't help wonder if there's sort of like he is this mute he plays with children he doesn't speak he communicates with this little flute thing people who are disabled are often infantilized and so in that moment this I mean as I said some of the best acting in the movie which is the bar is not super high but that's also his death is this sort of like no I mean he's just not a fully fleshed character of course but that sort of like dispendability and I mean everyone of course except ghost is and girl are expendable but that sort of moment also makes me think about how disabled characters in in movies and and so forth often are these marginalized you know you know if there's a group of people the person who limps the person who is Mm -hmm. disabled in some way that you know it's like in Star Trek having the red shirt or whatever like yeah not entirely surprising but very very frustrating so the Vikings capture a few people they start to torture is this alternate boyfriend yes alternate boyfriend is hanging upside down head in fire pathfinder mercy kills him essentially and I have to say, this is a really uh, excellent opportunity that they missed. They could have done the right of the blood eagle. If they're going to be really historically, mm. you know, anachronistic, they could have done that. <laughs> but instead, they do the upside down and fire trick. That would have been visually interesting, at least. Yeah, the but, visually interesting you know. would played into, you know, Viking stereotypes and all this. But at the same time, fire, upside down and fire is also a perfectly acceptable way of really hitting home that these are horrible, violent people, which is their purpose in the movie. They're violent, but they're very uncreative in this movie. Very like, I feel like the Vikings is portrayed in this film wouldn't have, like, been smart enough to come up with the bloody call. That's also a very good point. <laughs> that is a really good point. And also, they have no purpose beyond violence. No, they just want to hurt people. That. That's really it, because again, they don't even seem to want to settle. They just want to kill people. Right. Yep. <sighs> killing for the sake of killing, like, I don't know, I drink tea for the sake of drinking tea. Like, no purpose yeah. to it. Yeah, as you do. Pathfinder and Ghost and Girl are also captured. Pathfinder has shown up at this point. Yes. Like, yes. Out of the bushes. He gets killed. He gets ripped apart. We got some good blood spray going into Ghost's face. Drawn and quartered with all those horses that they have brought across. The Opie knows that these, all these yes. biking horses, right? More about that yes. later. And then, of course, so, you have like, yes. nice, it's really bloody because, you know, mm-hmm. ripping people apart. Always fun. Absolutely. They begin to torture girl. I think here there's also some creepy, like, they, like, lick her arm and then go to, put, like, cut her hand off. And it's like, Why? Why do we need to have you lick her arm? Why? Why are we doing this? 
serves no narrative purpose. I mean, they're trying to get somebody to lead them to the next village because, you know, violence for the sake of violence. And I feel like yes. licking somebody's arm, may, I mean, oh, maybe there's like, it's you know, sexual and then the ghost would get really upset and be like, no, don't put your saliva, your saliva enzymes on my girl. I'll tell you where the next village. I don't know if that's logic behind that or if it's just like, oh, do something really like, hey, actor who plays Gunnar, do something really gross. And he's like, oh, liquor. Yeah. Which, you know, frankly, is kind of gross. Yeah. And I feel like there was supposed to be a sexual implication, but it's like, uh, this is, it's like, it's very gross, but it's also like very PG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's not really like overtly sex, but yeah. it's also like gross. And it's kind of, it's a kind of falls flat as a narrative yeah. strategy. Between the licking and the fact that they are about to cut off her hand, this is sufficient, however, to get a Ghost to agree that he will leave them to the next village. And he does also, he speaks Norse. Did you know that you could go 15 years without speaking a word of a language and suddenly be able to speak it perfectly fluently? Wow, I'm just a defective person because if I go like, I don't know, six months without speaking a language, I can hardly figure out what I'm trying to say. Gee, like, right. yeah, no, totally. Wow, that's up. And he speaks it like, and it, it's like, there's no halting. Like, if you think about movies where people are learning languages, like 13th Warrior or Dance with yeah. Wolves, there's like this process. He's just like, no, like, he's just like, speaks it fully and confidently. Yep. Oh, grant me the ability to remember languages like a topless girl urban in this movie. Right? Right? Yeah, I want to influence, like, wow, I would be thrilled if, like, when I get to go back to, uh, to Catalonia after all this is over, if my Catalan is that good. Oh my uh, gosh, yes, uh, yes. He, I bet you uh, speak, like, I don't know, Ashkenazi Hebrew or something magically, yeah. though, right? Yeah, where is my genetic Hebrew? I worked, I worked hard on Hebrew. Why can't I just genetically speak Hebrew? Come on. Your life Come is not on. scripted by whoever scripted this movie. Sorry, Sarah, your life sucks, sucks to be you, really. Which, which would have been helpful you know, for languages, like, man, if I could just fluently speak every language that I had ancestors uh, who had spoken that language, damn, that would be oh awesome. Oh my gosh, this is the summer for me of reading, like, German, and, and you know, everything from I'm 15th so century to modern German, and wow, I mean, my last name is von Weissen, but I just couldn't pronounce it in Swedish. Maybe I could just, like, magically know all the Germans that I need to read this summer. Oh, that would be great. Yeah. Ugh. Life is unfair. I know. Why doesn't it work that way? Oh. He begins the process of leading them. So this is where he, I think, uh, actually like brings back Pathfinder's instructions, right? Of using their strengths and their goals against them, essentially. And so he's essentially just trying to kind of take advantage of them, essentially of their kind of worst impulses in terms of their like impetuousness and their blind desire for genocide. <laughs> Which is also interesting because now they're like solidly in winter Mm-hmm. And apparently people from Scandinavia, 600 years before Columbus, which I think I did the math exactly how long. And it's wrong. Yeah, it should be more like 500 years, but they said but, 600. You know, fair enough. So that would be 892. Scandinavians apparently don't have a very good understanding of winter. And I mean, maybe mm-hmm. if they're all from Denmark, but Iceland, Norway which is most likely, or Greenland, you know, the Mm -hmm. people who, I'm I'm actually pretty offended by this sort of like lack of understanding of climate. You would think that they would know that sometimes ice is too thin to walk across. You would think they would know that. You'd think they'd know that. You'd think you would know this. You would think that you would know this. 
Mm-hmm. But they do not know this. So it's this whole episode where he's like, oh, we shouldn't cross the ice because, uh, you know, it's not, it's not strong enough. And then they're like, no, you're dumb. We think it's fine. And like insist upon going across the lake right. so they can murder people sooner. As opposed to if there's one thing that you should be really careful, be like, hmm, okay, ice. Maybe we should be careful. Like there, there's no weak ice in Scandinavia is offensive. I'm just saying, I mean, mm-hmm. this weak ice thing might be a more prominent trope in medieval Russian and Finnish legends. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of like ice and strong and weak ice things. Uh, it's not a big part of what we see in Scandinavian uh, Finland, not being mm-hmm. part of Scandinavia, so you don't see it as much in that. But this was certainly registered as something in, you know, just because it's not as big a part of legends. Yeah, this doesn't was, mean that it's not something new. Right, it, this, it's so... I, 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 just, I mean, I, I would assume that any place that has, like, major winter, the people who live there should know that. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. And then somebody walks out on ice and is like, oh, this is maybe not a good idea. And then they're just like, no, we're going to go forward on horses. Yeah. Anyway, yes. so this doesn't go well. A bunch of people fall in. A bunch of people die. Ghost Girl and Gunnar obviously do make it. Obviously, as you said, and I'm glad you informed me of this, you're obviously more up on your natural science than I am. Hypothermia is a modern invention. Yeah. Yeah, nobody, because like ghost is underwater for a really long time in freezing water. We have visions about Pathfinder and then coming uh up, but the ice is clear enough that you can see through it, which just another the whole other story and he's like mm-hmm. banging on it and and he's exercising his muscles and you're thinking wow that's an awful lot of oxygen you've got stored yeah i feel there. like this is implying that both hypothermia and drowning are modern inventions <laughs> indeed indeed they are they were supermen back then they were totally supermen oh wow the great white past of- <laughs> <laughs> uh or maybe it's maybe it has something to do with I was gonna say maybe it has something to do with like white men don't suffer from hypothermia and right. drowning, but you know, right. um, girl is also you know exposed to the elements here, so right. And some of the Vikings do drown. That's true. They some of them do drown, but they're you yes. Know, I was going to say unnamed side characters, but everyone's an unnamed side character. Well, yeah, pretty much. They're unnamed, like, fifth string characters, so. Right, right. They're like, you know, Viking 1, Viking 2, Viking 18. Yeah, we're at the point where they don't even have names in the credits anymore. Right, right. So they can die, they can drown and have hypothermia and all that. At some point, they have to go over a mountain range. They're kind of edging along a cliff. He suggests that they tie themselves together for stability. They're immediately like, well, that's dumb. And then, like, somebody falls and dies. And then you're like, maybe we should tie ourselves together, you know, for stability. So then they do that. And, of course, you know, you have this moment when Ghost is, like, sees the party that died in the avalanche with, you know, Pathfinder's successor. And he's like, oh, I have an idea. I'm going to lead them across the mountains. Right. And then we're going to rope ourselves together. Because people who are from, like, I don't know, Norway wouldn't have any clue about, like, mountains. But yeah, and essentially what he's doing the whole thing is he's just kind of leading them uh, around effectively randomly. At some point, he convinces them that the trail is real by he, like, at some point, like, picks up a doll that had been left and then throws it in the direction that he wants them to go in. Yes. That's basically what he's doing. So yeah, he takes him over this mountain. But then despite his best efforts, they do eventually reach a village. Well, they see a village in the distance. Because first of all, you are leading us in the wrong direction. You're not. And then he's like, behold, and you see smoke in the distance. 
Right. So there's then, a village. I don't know if it's a village that they thought they were going to, but probably wasn't the closest one, but whatever. It is a village. And I mean, the Vikings clearly don't care. They just want to kill everyone. Yeah. And this is yeah. a moment where uh, Ghost needs a distraction. So he says to the girl in a language the Vikings don't understand, hit me, hit me, hit mm-hmm. me. And this is also another favorite part because she's just like, First, she's like, no, I can't. And then she's just like, okay. And she whacks him. And yeah, he's down. She and on him. she is kicking him. And I'm like, go, girl, go, girl. Good right? for you. Good for you. And of course, this is then what happens. This sort of like the point that comes out of this is Chieftain Gunnar kind of rips them apart. And then they're like, what son of a Viking is going to let a woman hit him? Then he's sort of like, fake lets them goad him into punishing this weak woman who's clearly not weak she's standing up for herself and and so she he rips her coat open and goes to pull something from his belt like he's gonna whip her well it turns out that it's a sling and then he uses a sling to flawlessly in the moment which you know if you practice maybe you know to throw a stone and hit the last viking on this long string and they've got they've had unending like ceaseless number of men like unending manpower but the last dude who's roped together he whacks him in the face with this and then they just domino and then just domino down the mountainside and you know manages to save girl and then there's this whole like cliffhanger people hanging off each other kind of thing going on there and then you have the stand down between Gunnar and Ghost. Gunnar goes you chose savages over your own kind and you're just like I know who I really am. Which she then yells in English a language that Gunnar doesn't understand. (laughs) I know who I am. This of course causes a plot avalanche. A plot avalanche yes absolutely an identity avalanche I believe is the word that you used when we were watching this. Avalanche comes down he has proven to himself that he is, in fact, I don't know, Native American, maybe? Gunnar is, uh, you know, he's, like, about to basically fall to his death. He knows that he's lost. He asks for the honor of dying by the sword and says uh, that he should give it to him because I am the last of your kind in this cursed land. And then Ghost responds, you're not my kind, and then just, like, lets him fall to his death, not to giving him the honor. And it is, again, it's this very muddled message overall over the course of this film that, on the one hand, it's very much about, like, identity is about how you're raised and like he's able to like make this choice that these are his people because this is who he's grown up grown up with this is who he sees as his family on the other hand there is this weird genetic determinism that he has all of these skills that he has just inherited via his viking blood right nature versus nurture there's definitely stuff going on here but now we have gotten rid of all the vikings they're all dead yay Woo. Ghost and girl get to the village. We're told that the spirit of the prophecy has come full circle. And I'm like, wait, so so is it just like, is the white dude, the pro- the prophecy, is like he the prophetic being who's going to change things? Instead right. Of, not, it's not the horse, it's, it's this dude, it's this white dude. And so to remind ourselves of the prophecy, there's this prophecy that... You, they see this thing that is fleet of foot and white as snow. And when they see mm-hmm. it, this with this comes great change. And the great change could be all this stuff with ghost, ghost being, or it could also be that he gives the 
symbol of the pathfinder to a girl which i'm sorry what authority does he have to do this i that, that's who knows it's not even like pathfinder gave it to him endowing him with the authority as his successor no, he, really. does. he does he does he gives it to him okay. when they're like in the water and this vision or something and he's like gives it to him and he's like who do i give it to and it's something like well you will know so he is kind of given this mystic mm, authority okay. to know okay right. all right Genetics. Yeah, so he, yeah, genetics. But yeah, anyway, so he gives it to girl, which is nice. I'm, I'm glad that, I'm glad that she has a title now, even if she still doesn't have a name. Right. And anyway, yes, and so I am going to argue that because she never, in fact, is given a name at any point in the film, this movie does not, in fact, pass the If Decker test. You know, it doesn't pass the, the, the If Decker uh, test. However, it is interesting, and I find it gratifying that she has a little bit more agency than I expected yes. in the beginning. And yes. especially, you know, she she fights and she leaves to follow Ghost on her own initiative, although it is a romantic mm-hmm. following as opposed to a, right. I want to go and gouge out their eyes following. And then, you know, she does smack him upside the head. We don't actually know what Pathfinder does. In the end, she says that now she no. leads the people of the dawn. So is this like a chieftain shaman or somebody? So I don't know. If can, but she has a title, even if she does not have a name. I she would, has a title and a job. And, you know, and, and she also clearly in the end has children. So sexual fulfillment. I don't know. That's assuming a lot. I hope. I mean, she's having sex. I, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to make a statement about how fulfilling it is. Yes, although we are supposed to misunderstand, assumingly, that it's awesome because shirtless Carl Urban. Yeah. I don't know. Now, I would agree that, I mean, I think we could make arguments to challenge the if Decker test in this, but fundamentally, I agree with you that she is not a named character, even if she survives. And having a title yep. and a job does not make up for that. And, you know, and the, the reason I have this is in part because I feel like the omission of names for women, although, you know, to be fair, in this movie, everybody except for Ghost has their name omitted. Which but is possibly do... a better argument for yes. the if, you know, her passing the if Decker test is because, right. I mean, nobody, very few people has names. However, I don't think it's quite convincing enough. And I do think that in general, the absence of names for women, even when they are major characters, is a sign that the filmmakers ultimately see these characters as fundamentally far less important than the male characters. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I do think that that is significant, and so I'm going to stand by it. And also, especially because she's even the only candidate. I mean, there are exactly two women in this entire movie, neither of whom have names and one of whom is dead. Right. So that's why I ultimately am going to say that I think that this movie should not get the benefit of the doubt is because it really does not seem like a movie that is deeply invested in its female characters. It is not. So that's Pathfinder. And at this point, we can get into the Vera at Falso, where you talk about what they got right and what they got wrong. It's is either going to be an incredibly long section or an incredibly short section. <laughs> well, I'm going to say they didn't get a ton right. No, nope. it wasn't a ton. Nope, not a whole lot. We've, of course, already got into our horned helmets, but let's talk about some other armor and weaponry issues. The Vikings are wearing like full plate armor. Full plate armor. Yes, they are. Yep. Yeah, that's not a no. thing. It's that not a thing. Would have been the case. Chainmail, leather, padded, like padded quilting. jackets, quilted yeah. jackets. I believe gambeson might be the term they used later in Central right. Europe. That's what metal they helmets. Potent, you know, metal helmets. Metal helmets. Some people. The center pieces of shields, weapons. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, Vikings were very into metal weapons. Armor. Yeah. 
plate armor? No. I mean, that's not like no. anywhere. That doesn't come no. until way in this, yeah. After. Yeah, you wouldn't see that anywhere in the ninth, tenth century. According to the open, so okay, according to the opening crawl, it would be the ninth yep. century, uh, the late ninth century, which is mm-hmm. questionable. But uh, we'll get into that in a moment. Yeah, nowhere in the late ninth century would that have been common. Yep. Like at most, they might have like some metal plates sewn onto yep. a kind of leather, like sewn onto leather, or they would have had chainmail. But yeah, not this like full plate armor which also the horses have i believe yes the horses also have armor which which have horns on them oh yes they do but actually so let's talk about horses that's actually a really interesting part of this movie because you listen so this movie is from 2007 the sort of eurocentric scholarly consensus was oh horses originated in the americas then they die out and then they're reintroduced by Europeans. This is sort of like the idea. However, the Native American narrative is like, no, horses have had a continuous presence. Like there's oral tradition, there's various things. And in 2017, there's a doctoral dissertation by Yvette Running Horse Collin from University of Alaska Fairbanks that is like, okay, well, let's look at the evidence as it is and actually proves that there is a continuous horse presence in the Americas based on archaeological evidence, based on DNA analysis of archaeological evidence, various things. This movie, in the very beginning when we see a horse that's running around without a saddle, based on Collins' research, one could say, yes, that actually is correct. But that's clearly not the narrative that the movie is putting forward. The movie is putting forward that sort of traditional Eurocentric, we reintroduced, well, first we introduced the horse to the Americas. And then when they found photo bones, they're like, oh, we reintroduced the horse. So that's a really interesting kind of phenomenon that you have about horses and how knowledge works and how knowledge production Mm -hmm. works and kind of what kind of stories we tell ourselves. And, oh, no, we can't actually look at the evidence because we have decided that we introduced, we Europeans introduced the horse. So that's really interesting. So shout out to Yvette Running Horse Colin and her 2017 dissertation. I actually want to shout out uh, another dissertation, which is Christina Stelter's dissertation, which is a literature dissertation from 2014 at the University of Glasgow, excellently titled The Horse and the Norse, Reconstructing the Equine in Viking Iceland. Stelter's argument is in part about the fact that when you're actually thinking about horses, first of all, Vikings did not typically ride horses into battle. Horses uh, were for transportation and they were pack animals based on her research and some other things that I came up. The, in fact, the most distinctive feature about their horses seems to be that they were bred for what's called an ambling gait. Yes. Which is essentially something that like makes them kind of comfortable to ride. And that also it seems to have some relationship as far as I can tell to the appearance of these horses, which tend to be relatively small and stocky, as opposed to what you see in this film, where because they are riding them into battle, they're these like massive cavalry horses. Yes, they are in fact continental European style cavalry horses is what they look like. I mean, from the medieval perspective, the Norse horse would have been the closest living breed is the Icelandic horse, which is, it has mm-hmm. five gates. The most famous is the Fölth, which is this sort of really super smooth. It's actually really creepy. I mean, I have a lot of respect for horses. <laughs> I suspect that horses are significantly smarter than I am and riding them kind of terrifies me. But when you're on an Icelandic mm-hmm. horse and they're kind of walking or, or, or running normally or whatever, the trotting normally, and then they shift into the Fölth, it's sort of like, it's really kind of just... Dis- uh, 
it's dissettling because suddenly it goes to this sort of like from like a up, down, up, down to this sort of like gliding because there's no rhythm that your body can kind of yeah. adapt to, right? And you're like, okay. But that seems to be the point is that it's supposed to just be yeah. like really comfy. <laughs> Which is, it's just great if you're not as, you know, terrified of falling as I clearly <laughs> am. So that is a really interesting about this horse as well. I also think that there's a, I mean, they clearly, the Norse brought horses to Iceland. I don't off the top of my head remember if we have that evidence from the Greenland settlements, but that would be my guess. But if they're settling in Americas, as our beginning yes. blurb said, having then horses. there would be horses. I mean, there could be Maybe. horses, but horses are not as vital for settling as others. And so, for example, right. the 13th century Vinland sagas talk about cattle. They talk mm-hmm. about milk and they talk about Karsefni, one of these characters. He has a bull and Karsefni's bull scares the natives away. But so we have that. But horses would not be, I, I feel like if you're settling, cattle would be more important than horses. But I'm not yeah. 100% sure about that. But they Horses certainly... are like a couple of steps in, I think, is my sense. That would be my gut feeling. But again... I mean, who knows? I mean, we don't know enough about this, this story, but there's the, they're the wrong right. kind of horses carrying the wrong kind of armor. And so the whole- Doing idea. the wrong sorts of things. Yes. Yeah, because I was I was uh, reading about in this dissertation as well, the transportation of horses. And there are actually special boats for horse transportation. I mean, not only for horse transportation, but if you're going to bring a horse, you don't want like your regular long ship, which has like this kind, which is kind of like curvy. Yes. You want something that has a part of the hull is flat. So like the horses can stand up straight. Yes, you absolutely would like a different kind of, and, and the ships that we do see are clearly the traditional raiding expedition long yes. ships in, right. in in this. They are not, they are not the Canada, they're not that sort of like transportation vessel. Right, but you know, and this is a seafaring culture, and part of that means that they have a variety of different kinds of ships that have different kinds of uses, and so there is a difference between your like quick in and out raiding ship versus your cargo ship, and they do not have, or we do not see in the film the like kinds of the kind of like the, this like cargo ship how do you pronounce it the nor knar would be the swedish but knar would be also one pronunciation depending on which okay. word you're using we're, we're a bit messy on our horse situation we and have nicely la- oh. managed to critique eurocentric narratives of horses and we have nicely been able to name drop some recent scholarship as well and speaking of eurocentric narratives i also wanted to say one more word about weaponry it is in fact the case that probably these people would not have been familiar with metal weaponry as far as i can tell but the The native americans the native americans yes but the idea that there is this then obvious and complete technological superiority of uh, the Vikings' metal weaponry over the Native Americans' weaponry doesn't really make sense. And this is especially true when you take into account their weapons are made largely of things like bone and stone. It's not like you can just slice through them. No, absolutely. And it's, I mean, there's this, there's a very much of a sort of this narrative of like Viking weapons and superior steel and people completely ignore that. Yes, the most prized weapons the Vikings used were actually not necessarily domestic. Like mm-hmm. swords. Yeah. That, that would have been, there's these Frankish swords that are very important. The right, that their swords and actually famous. like the chain mail and stuff as well, right, were uh, tended to be Frankish imports, I believe. Yeah, and they said, I mean, yes, they had iron, you know, iron ore in the yeah. lakes and all this, and that's great. But like this sort of technological somehow superiority of the Norse. I mean, yes, actually their ships are technologically like yeah. really, I mean, are they superior? 
meh, I don't know, they are really well suited for what they do, and other people in Europe didn't do what the Vikings did with their ships. Right. And Which so, is about, you know, priorities at yeah. least, right? And like they created a piece of technology that nobody else had because it suited right. their needs. And so there's a little bit of apples to oranges, but when it comes to weapons, yeah. this idea that they have these swords and that's somehow magically awesome versus Native Americans who are on their home terrain, who, you know, hunt with bow and arrows, which of course Scandinavians probably did too, but that's not as, you know, you don't see that a lot in in sagas. Of course, sagas are Mm -hmm. stories about like ancestors written hundreds of years later, but we don't have a lot of evidence for bows and Mm -hmm. arrows in the way that we have for axes and swords. This sort of obsession with the kind of the weaponry in the movie it's not verbalized but it's mm-hmm. clearly part of this like oh we've never seen a sword and and you know that kind of ideas is it speaks to these sort of narratives that i think of fan fiction of vikings more than actual mm-hmm. knowledge about the norse or about the native right. americans more importantly yeah and this is something that's interesting is that this technological superiority narrative comes up again and again in a variety of different mm-hmm. specific yes. contexts that comes up in the columbus in the columbus and you know in, the, in terms of columbus it comes up even in later contexts they're talking about guns i came across some things that were interesting about that they're basically like well first of all guns weren't even that helpful because uh, you know it because often they were like of fighting when they were fighting Native Americans, the Native Americans were often like in woods that they knew better and like, okay, that's nice that you have a gun, but you can't shoot them if you don't know where they are. And stop to reload. And right. Yeah. No, that's that's I think that there's this sort of like enamored, we are enamored by mm-hmm. our guns and we're enamored what we can do. And it makes us because we know what guns can do, you know, the damage we feel safer with them. And I, I think that there's a lot of parallels to this sort of, I mean, a gun, the fetish that we have with guns, which, mm-hmm. you know, is not unique to modern America. And, oh, I don't know, the white power movement. But, mm-hmm. like, there's definitely a sort of obsession with that. I mean, it's not until later that guns become mm-hmm. such a superior weapon. But those first right. contacts, you know, the first however many generations, I don't know. It, it's, it just seems like it ignores... Well, it ignores diseases. Also, these Vikings mm-hmm. apparently do not bring right. diseases to North America, which is kind of blessings, right? But yeah. I do feel that it's really that narrative in the movies picks up on, I mean, movies always reflect our own time period. They don't reflect yes. at all the time period they're trying to depict. And that sort of a p- obsession with technological superiority is clearly a really important part of it are we going to talk about the morning stars yeah and then of course the more there are the morning stars which i believe from what i was reading the earliest we have them is uh 14th century i was somehow under the impression that they were just like a fictive weapon that they actually never existed but i did not look that up so i'm going to trust you on that i was doing some research i'll be honest i was doing some relatively cursory research on the morning stars so what i found said 14th century but what i found is not necessarily the most reputable so maybe they're even later We'll say 14th century at the absolute earliest. Clearly not a ninth to, yes. I don't know, depending ninth, on when yeah. we consider the Viking Age to end, but this is not a thing. Yeah, I mean, so this movie takes place, it says the 9th century, the late 10th century would make more sense. Regardless, we do not at that point have morning stars. Considering how often these Vikings are like riding in this gray landscape backlit wielding morning stars you'd think that like every household had one you would think what's a household without a morning star really i mean greatly right? <laughs> i didn't see a single one at your house sarah i don't 
know. And of course, you know, again, you know, technological superiority, superiority rights, because they have the, they have these weapons centuries later. Right, right. <laughs> oh my God. Maybe they invented it. Maybe this is like one of those things like the Europeans reintroduced the horse. Maybe Vikings right. had morning stars and then they were reinvented later by other people. Huh? Mm, but yeah, and so, you know, and I will say also, I just, uh, I looked out of curiosity, I looked up the the date of Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, a book that, that is very much about these kind of technological superiority arguments. And uh, it's an argument that I would say scholars now are very critical of, uh, but I'm not even sure schol- that I, I'm not even sure all scholars were that critical of it in 2007, much less the people responsible for making this movie. And so that was very much something that was just kind of around and that was very much something that people assumed. But it is, I think, yeah, really important to acknowledge the fact that these are very much Eurocentric narratives that increasingly are seen as like not really holding weight. Much more sort of modern, more current research. Yes. Credits much more well, the germs theories, like the actual people, Mm -hmm. the eradication of people's like the you have these early early narratives of people coming to North America and they're like oh and there's like fires cooking fires all along the coast as far as I can see and then the next generation of people who believe mm-hmm. written records from Europe are like and it's pristine empty virginal landscape <laughs> for us for the taking wonder how that happened right I wonder how that happened and of course germs mm. This idea, like, oh, but Europeans hadn't come that far inland. Right. Yes, because these Native Americans didn't in any way communicate with each other and nope. transmit diseases that they had mm-hmm. contracted. Like, how fast mm-hmm. do you think disease spreads? When we have this global pandemic, how fast did we think that mm-hmm. this disease spread? even outside airplanes and stuff. And so Mm -hmm. that is a much more current understanding than technological superiority. And on technology as well, I will also note that insofar as weapons work, like did seem useful, they were actually adopted really quickly by local Native Americans, which then actually leads into the Historia Veritas, where I wanted to talk about a real historical event person or phenomenon, and in this case about what is it that we know about Vikings and the Americas. And there's actually a really interesting crossover to the technology. So what we do know, and there's sort of a chronology of understanding what we know about the Vikings in the Americas. Obviously, the first records that we have is the saga literature. The sagas, the, particularly the 12th century sagas, the Vinland sagas, Eric the Red Saga and Saga of the Greenlanders. And they do talk about technology. The Norse show up in Vinland, they're, you know, they're blown off course, and then they're like, they see this land, and they show up, and they have swords, and they have axes, uh, particularly axes are sort of interesting, and the Native Americans are sort of fascinated by these weapons, Right. and there's these two kind of examples where you have, oh, this is a really great tool, we can like hack things with it, and then somebody kills one of the native americans kills another and they're like well shit and they just throw it in you know they just throw it away this is a a horrible weapon we should not have anything to do with this because it's easy to kill with and then the other one this is my favorite there's this axe and they're like oh you can chop all these things but then you bang it against stone and it chips and they're like well that's useless that's a useless like thing and they just get rid of it and so that's one aspect of depicting the sort of the weapons and the Native Americans. And then the other one is that the Native Americans are really interested in the weapons, but the Norse are like, "Uh, I don't think so. This is a bad idea. Let's not sell this to them. And instead, Mm -hmm. the trade is not based on selling weapons, but on milk. 
which would indicate to me that they have dairy animals with them. Right. right. And so that's one of the narratives in the Vinland sagas. And so Vinland sagas, I mean, saga literature is never evidence for Vikings. Mm -hmm. They're written much later. They're these writings about, you know, our kind of glorious but problematically pagan ancestors originating from Iceland. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's they're amazing and everyone should read all the sagas because they're awesome. The Vinland sagas are two and they're pretty short sagas. There's a great yeah. um, Penguin classic edition. But this was sort of like, oh, Vinland, where is Vinland? Vinland, like named for like Veen for wine. In mm. sagas, there's a actually a, a German slave who's like finds grapes and it's just like grapes. Mm. And so there's a lot of like thought about okay, where would the Norse have gotten? So in the 1800s, right. early 1900s, there's a lot of like, where would they have gone? Is this just a story? How would this have worked? So that would have been an, another sort of one source of this. The Greenland settlements were really well known. You know, they traded what walrus ivory at least in the 14th century, yeah. and then when their sort of their economy is completely dependent on mm -hmm. walrus ivory, and then that's displaced by African elephant ivory. Right. And then that sort of moves on. It makes sense in terms of the timing, because based on what I was reading, that settlement, the I think the last uh, clear evidence of it is in the 15th century, or like yes. around 1430, I think. Yes, 1430. And then we also have like from the 16th century, the Pope is like, um, there's like Christians out there. Like, shouldn't we like look into what happened? Like what happened? <laughs> that's ideal. So that's sort of going on. I mean, there's also other sort of like oral traditions Like people are like, oh, there's Madoff, this Welsh prince who like magically goes over to Americas, but that's not the Vikings go to America. Whalers, monks, various things, but that's not really the, the Greenland settlement and sort of these other stories. I mean, Prince Madoff of Wales is completely fictional, but since like white dudes, especially not Germans, mm -hmm. French and English people were sort of like take the Vinland saga seriously nope. or the right. Greenland settlement really like mm -hmm. so obviously that's an count and then of course there's the vinland map this amazing forgery mm -hmm. that surfaces in 1957 and yale university buys it for an undisclosed sum of money Ooh. it's obviously man big. do i want to know how much money that was i know right well wikipedia <laughs> i think it was like oh 300 000. i'm like mm, maybe i don't know but it's obviously a fake, but it's very exciting for anti-Catholics in the 1960s who are super excited right. to be able to claim that white dudes discovered uh -huh. America before Italians, who of course were not white. In were the not at days. the time considered to be white, right. right. But conveniently, and, yeah. Scandinavians, by the time this had happened, had become white in the 1800s. Right. Hashtag racism yeah. misconstructions. And, and so there's actually this really interesting history of these... Uh, fraudulent archaeological discoveries uh, in stone. yeah so in Minnesota there's this stone with runic inscriptions found in Kensington Minnesota that at some point they're like no this at some point people like realize like yeah actually no this is this is a fake but it is very much about like let's focus on this like white Scandinavian past and try to bring it back further. And of course, what's interesting in Minnesota, because Minnesota, of course, much later has a lot of Scandinavian immigration. Absolutely. And this whole, like, I mean, it has to do with this anti-Catholic, because of course, the Scandinavians mm -hmm. are conveniently Protestant. By the time this is sort of a big deal, of course, the Vikings were not Protestant. <laughs> putting that out there and sort of this speed there's this huge like movement for Leif Erikson and mm -hmm. like the discoverer of America and people always forget 
forget Bjarne, who spotted America first, according to the Finland sagas, which, you know, and there's a lot of like white supremacists um, who yeah. have embraced this. There's some really problematic use of this as sort of evidence for Scandinavian superiority, anti-Catholicism, mm-hmm. the strong, pure Nordic race, which I always find really fascinating because the American founding fathers considered Scandinavians swarthy. And that's a great example right. of, of the construction of race and yeah. how, how Scandinavians were able to kind of own. There's a really interesting scholarship on uh, of the Scandinavian community in Chicago during the uh, mm-hmm. World Fair were able to kind of make themselves the ideal immigrants riding on the backs of these yeah. problematic racial theories and stuff. It so, is really interesting, of course, as a part of American history, the ways in which different kinds of immigrant groups at different points are kind of incorporated into whiteness of Scandinavians, uh, the Irish and Italians and uh, Jews, although every now and then you see some like little like moments here and there where it's like, oh, does does everybody actually still think that uh, that we're white? Because I, I, uh, I, I would think, I think that I'm probably white and I certainly benefit from white privilege. Then there's, you know, Charlottesville where they're chanting, the Jews will not replace us. And it's like, right. oh, okay. No, and it is really interesting. I mean, so Finland is not part of Scandinavia. We're part of the Nordic right. countries, but people certainly consider us super white. Yet, I mean, interesting contrast to like Nazi race ideology in which mm-hmm. Finns are mongoloid. Mm. And so there's really interesting sort of like who is considered white and when and by whom. Yeah. And, yes. you know, how much of it is in this interesting intermix of skin color slash religion and I think religion plays a really important part of this and the example of the Jews is a really good one right like of how that is kind of weirdly mixed in there or like people who make assumptions about work ethic based on racialized Mm -hmm. ideas and assumptions Mm -hmm. about how good or bad people are with money or how in America how American you can be and I think about Mormons who were like mm-hmm. considered like super un-American and we had this massive I mean this is the antagonism between the Mormons and their polygamy I mean Mormonism is a right. really American religion it's from upstate it's actually Florida. arguably the most American religion but it actually is like a religion that is you know founded in yes. America and that is deeply rooted in American uh, culture yes and totally like dependent on freedom of religion I mean it's the most yeah kind of um, the most American modern religion absolutely and this and and yet this sort of like anti-polygamy which they've justified theologically and so forth is what makes the interpretation of the constitution especially when it comes to the domestic private sphere mainstream protestant document Mm -hmm. this is a really important part of like how people are considered whatever and so the embracing of Leif Erikson as the discoverer of America as a way to displace you know the Italian Columbus and of course I'm sitting there thinking he's from Genoa like Italy (laughs) like wait what like (laughs) right and Italy is of course not a thing right no it's not a thing you know 15th century like this is just not a thing and he's also like some guy from Genoa who then is like paid and like you know by the span of you know there's a lot of interesting things but this whole sort of like whether the Vinland sagas actually represent actual Vikings in North America or you know the Greenland settlements did that like enable them to come here or the Vinland map really becomes moot because in 1960 there's a discovery of Lanzo Middo in Newfoundland a actual Norse well we often say it's a settlement if it was a settlement of an overwintering uh, location so mm-hmm. like a, a semi-permanent base or sort of a transient when you're out doing your walrus 
hunting or whatever, that's yeah. sort of something that one can discuss. But this becomes a National Historic Site of Canada in 1968. Seven buildings, carbon dated to about the year 1000. I, so somebody who's interested in textiles, there's like weights, which are stone mm-hmm. weights, which are probably from a loom, household items. I'm not sure about hoist, horses or bowls, bowl, but there is really unrefutable evidence for a Scandinavian presence around the year 1000 in North America. How farther right. inland, how permanent they were, that's kind of up for hopefully we find more evidence, more scholarship will come out of this, but nobody can be like the Norse didn't come. So on one hand, it proves all the Leif Eriks on like rah-rah Scandinavian presence in America. Right. But I think it's a good example of what we do with this information is mm-hmm. so valuable. Like, am I going to Absolutely. use this to kind of try to lord it over other people and to emphasize my own group? That is a problematic aspect versus mm-hmm. if I'm like, oh, and scholarship shows that there was like Norse here and there was like mm-hmm. warp-weighted loom weights, which I'm fine right. with. The other thing that's interesting is that it is, I believe in that area was also, there is a group that was based there called the Thule. I'm apologies if I am not pronouncing that correctly. The, the Thule Inuit population. Yes, they're like, they're described in something I was reading, they were described as kind of like proto-Inuit or mm-hmm. something like that. Okay, yes, the Thule yes, people. Mm-hmm. The Thule, it's clear that like they had iron artifacts that date around 1000. And so they are at least learned something about technology surrounding iron and are using that. And, and also of, they have, yeah. Some of the iron that we have from sort of the, the early, the Thule population, and then later, some of it seems to be from Scandinavian origin. And mm-hmm. some of it, I believe, and I could be wrong, I was talking to a colleague I mean, Native Americans certainly had the technology to use copper, bronze, like yes, absolutely, use other metals, and there is iron that exists here. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but so they have iron, and they found carvings that are associated with the Tula, but that resemble Norse chess pieces. Yes, and that is also really interesting and really awesome, especially because we have such good evidence of Norse chess pieces. Mm-hmm. The Lewis Chessmen, for example, are the most yes. famous examples. Of with course. these. You know, stereotypical conical helmets with a nose guard, no horns pointing down. No horns, shockingly. Shockingly. Shocking, I know. So there's clearly interaction and evidence of that. And you have the Norse sagas and also sort of oral traditions of interactions with the natives in both Greenland and, of course, North America. But again, sagas. Right. Not always direct evidence. Although that is, I think, just one other thing that I think is interesting and valuable to mention is the fact that there is this evidence of uh, both hostilities, but also mm-hmm. more positive or at least neutral interactions, which is, of course, not what you see in this film. And I do also think that it is really valuable, first of all, to make the note of the fact that the Columbus model was not necessarily perhaps the only model for quite mm-hmm. how things could have gone, but also that uh, the white supremacist narratives that tend to make use of the Vikings, I think one really interesting counterpoint to that is the fact that if you actually look at the history of Viking travel, it actually demonstrates some amount of openness to engaging with people of different cultures and even perhaps, you know, adapting or learning from them. The Vikings or the Norse, of which of course Vikings, it's a, it's an occupation pirate. They're really excited by things that are different and exotic. Everything from, I mean, we've known this 
from a variety of sources, like within one or two generations, when the Norse settles someplace, they're not naming their children Norse names. They're not speaking. Mm -hmm. We don't have evidence of them speaking the language. They are really owning these other cultures. We have DNA analysis from Viking graves, which first of all, yeah. some of these famous like Viking hordes in England, it's not just men. It's like right. women and children and like mm -hmm. the whole shebang. But also this idea of some kind of ethnic purity. You have people who who were buried as Vikings who were from yeah. a variety of places, not just yeah. you know, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. You have people from Frisia and you have people participating in this quote unquote lifestyle who are like from Ireland and from various places. And yeah. I mean, even one of the most famous Viking warrior burials, turns out the person buried there has female chromosomes, whether what that yeah. means, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a female warrior who presents as female, but might have, I mean, who knows? Yeah. Just because your chromosomes are female doesn't mean you have secondary female sex characteristics and stuff. Right. But it could or have it been. indicate some amount of gender fluidity. It could absolutely indicate. And, and from everything that we know, overwhelmingly, the Vikings are really into, we might call it cultural appropriation or mm -hmm. you know, adapting and assimilating and really getting into that joyous, almost sometimes when you think about playful diversity, you have like... Yeah archaeological evidence you have a buddha statue from mm -hmm. 9th 10th century in, in birka in sweden you have this very typical irish bowl that's yeah. found in scandinavia and it has a runic text in a turkic language that mm -hmm. says something like you know drink well and have lots of sex and it's a society that is so into the different and into yeah. exotic and trade yeah. is i mean we think about oh yeah vikings like raiding trade is such a vitally important part of this world right and that means that like they have a lot of connections with a lot yes. of people which are not all entirely hostile i think that is really interesting in terms of you know when we're talking about trying to dispel white supremacist mythologies yes. that part of that is talking about like actually the vikings are if you actually you actually want to like learn something from the vikings and take the vikings as your model well the vikings are are, are arguably you know sort of icons of some sort of multiculturalism Absolutely. From food, walnuts. Professor of Harness at graduate school was very into this sort of exotic, mm -hmm. the exoticism of the walnut, mm. the importing wine, glasses, all these various things. Yeah. And I really think that I had students talking about this, like how multicultural and sort of really mm -hmm. in, in their own conversations being like, wow, white supremacists are really clueless. Like they have no idea yeah. of history. And mm -hmm. I was like, my work, work here is done. Everyone yeah. earns A's. Not really. I have some kind of professional integrity after all. But I do think <laughs> that that is, if there's one thing we should learn about the Norse, is mm -hmm. their adaptability, their cultural adaptability, yeah. their economic adaptability, mm -hmm. their embrace of diversity. Absolutely. And that they did not have yeah. horns on their helmets. If you remember nothing else, remember that neither they nor their horses had horned helmets. Diversity and no horns. That's, I think, yeah. a really good place to be in life, really. Absolutely. Also, they weren't so, dirty. I mean, this right. is one of the things that we know about uh, the Norse. There's this whole complaint about in England, like, oh, no, like, our women are going after these, like, yes. Northmen. Because they're like, they what? too much. Because they, like, they bathe too much and they're cutting their hair. And it's all like the way that the Norse thought of themselves from, you know, art and so forth is like they've got short hair, longer mm -hmm. hair in the front, but short in the back. Or as one of my students said, oh, you mean they had like business in the back and party in the front, like a reverse mullet? <laughs> Europeans from south of the Baltic didn't wash apparently as much and had longer hair. Of course, then you have the 13th mm -hmm. warrior where you have like people spitting in bath water and water and then others bathing in it. But 
I do think that that sort of, I'm thinking how much effort this movie puts into having the Norse be dirty. It's interesting to be like, hmm, these people yeah. apparently bathe a lot more than you think. Well, and in general, people in the Middle Ages tended to bathe a lot more than people tend to assume they did. But yeah, in particular, that, yeah, I think it is really interesting that they're so emphatic about them being just, you know, filth encrusted when, yeah, there is this narrative that indicates that, in fact, no, they even bathed more than some of their contemporaries. It's like the stereotypes of the horns, they're dirty, they have long hair, and for some reason, out of the blue, tattoos have showed up also as a thing. Which is also so fascinating because, of course, that's then one of the things that, like, white supremacists love them, some Viking tattoos. I mean, we remember the QAnon shaman at the Capitol insurrection who had his Viking, Viking tattoos going. Like, no. And then people are like, well, how do we know that they didn't have tattoos? It's like, no, we actually have enough evidence that we know that it's like, what do I know? I'm just a card-carrying historian. We don't, we don't know anything. Uh, it's, know uh, they're the real experts. Right, right. Uh, random, random dude who goes and gets, like, and gets a stupid tattoo. He's the real expert. So that we can go into the Fabula Noster section where we come up with a piece of media inspired by this one. I thought about this an awful lot. Like I should have today been reading my German here, modern German. And I was instead (laughs) like, what would I say? And I have with, I have three scenarios. So one, I'd say put some good subtitles on the original Norwegian film. Oh. Right? So this is a Norwegian film, uh, Ofelas, uh, from uh, 1987. And the Mm -hmm. 2007 movie is loosely based on it. And it's about the Sami, the indigenous population of Norway, Sweden, Finland, Mm -hmm. and north, very northwestern Russia. Uh, The Sami are the good guys. And they encounter this, a much more believable bad guy than our horned helmet dudes of Pathfinder (laughs) 2007. And Ofelas means Pathfinder. That's also in Sami, in in one of the Sami languages. There's multiple Sami languages, which are often conflated. Hashtag Nordic white supremacy, right? They sort of have this same situation. They want to find more people. And then a young boy is sort of like forced into pathfinding for them or Mm -hmm. guiding them. Leads them up a mountain. There's an avalanche, all these things. The bad guys are likely... Chufit from Sami folklore, who some mm-hmm. say are Norwegian, so that would be Christian Norwegians, yeah. some say they're Norse or Vikings, hmm. but regardless, they're marauders from, you know, someplace between the Viking Age and the 18th century. One can actually read about the, some of these sto- stories about the Chufit, so another plug, they've been recently translated in English by Tim Frandy, who's at Western Kentucky University, in his book, Inari Sami Folklore, Stories from Anad, which mm. is published by University of Wisconsin Press, and there's... It's a wonderful collection of Sami stories. So I would mm-hmm. say my number one would be like good subtitles on this. So that would be great. And you can actually watch this on YouTube. And YouTube has some that has a dubbed version, which is great. not super awesome. Mm-hmm. But there's also one that has the original Sami with uh, subtitles into Norwegian. So you can practice your Norwegian, you know, which I know okay. you're dying to do. Um, so that would be... <laughs> I can practice my non-existent Norwegian. Exactly. But it, I mean, <laughs> that would be my number one option. But that's not mm-hmm. quite the Fabula Nostra version. My number two, take ghost out completely. Just no, no ghost. Okay, great. Instead, have nameless girls. And sure, she can be called ghost. I'm okay with that. Maybe she can talk <laughs> to the dead. I don't know those Pathfinder, like, talking to dead Pathfinder. She could be named Starfire. She, ha- she has a name. We could we could just use it. We could just use it, absolutely. Or we could use something that will, like, foreshadow her later role or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, I don't know, alternate boyfriend teases her about this. I don't know. There's no reason she has to know Norse. I feel like there's no mm-hmm. moment in this movie where... 
ghost has to know Norse, except for like the no. whole identity avalanche kind of things. Like, yeah. you know, that's not, and, and you don't have to have that. We're not going to miss out on fabulous dialogue, let's be honest here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want the quiet one to be her love interest. Ooh. I want the quiet one to be boyfriend number one, mm-hmm. partially because contrary to common uh, movie narratives, disabilities do not reduce a person's ability to be fully fledged and interesting characters Absolutely. and people, right? Or to have a romantic relationship, something that also is very very rarely portrayed very rarely portrayed or then it's like a problematically like the thing right starburst and the quiet one who's you know maybe his name is jester i don't know they can build traps and you can you know they can use the weak ice story but i think they should make it smarter like telling the vikings it's a field and maybe having part of that sort of narrative being like finding a way to get to the lake so that the Mm -hmm. vikings don't see the boats and the fishing nets right yeah and then going out there and a delicious moment would be when the vikings realize that they're not in fact on a field but they're on ice that can carry a native american woman but not anyone in armor and i think they should also have like historically more accurate armor obviously and i think they also should not have horses but whatever they can have a couple of like icelandic pony pack animals exactly i mean this is all predicating that we want a native american centered viking interaction movie i'd be perfectly happy changing that narrative but if we're going to go with that i think this is how we should do this sure this is going to copy eisenstein's and the russian primary chronicles narrative about alexander nevsky who beats Mm -hmm. the swedes or the or the teutonic order depending on the version Mm -hmm. who you know they go on ice and you have like the russian light cavalry versus the heavy armored catholics because i like yeah. the idea of the weak ice yeah. but i think it can be done smarter and then she can leave them up the mountain and everything else can be taken by the avalanche and that's same she can save the quiet one i think that's a great narrative save but like not in the way that ghost does in this movie some kind of a yeah. smarter way they can stumble into the natives who fled and she can still be made pathfinder and the quiet one can be the one playing with their kids and her voice then telling that now she leads the people of the dawn maybe she could have even i was thinking like a name like i don't know morning bird or something that would like in the beginning kind of foreshadow the whole people of the dawn thing although Mm -hmm. i like the idea of having the name on the original right and so that's sort of like my if we're actually going to use this movie as the jumping off point if we're going to have like the basic premise native americans versus vikings in some kind of antagonistic relationship i would like Mm -hmm. historical accuracy with clothing and stuff like that always nice and then there's the movie that i actually want which would be first native band shows up on the shore and then there's suddenly a bunch of dudes and ships and then interactions based on the vinland sagas Mm -hmm. trade lots of trade curiosity about weapons disgust Mm -hmm. that you can harm people and then throwing these weapons in the sea or the axe that chips on on stone right excitement over milk because that seems to be what they're Mm -hmm. trading yeah one of the things they're trading like oh wow we have this milk and right i think that's really cool there's some interesting sort of interactions there and maybe, yes, if there's, because there's, the Vinland sagas do talk about fighting, they talk about violence, maybe showing it from the perspective of the mm-hmm. natives, like, there's this unpredictability, they don't quite like, well, why won't you trade this thing with us, we want these, I don't know, knives, they're really good for scraping hides or whatever, or you can get into an altercation, instead of having this sort of like, there's some really good bad guys in the Vikings of Finland sagas that you could use. Eriksson's daughter, Fredis, is a great example. She's like a total bitch in this 
in the saga. <laughs> There's some really interesting women in these sagas, mm, but if we're telling it really from the perspective of the Native Americans and center, if we we're going to use a European narrative to center mm-hmm. Native Americans, we could do this in a way that would be drawing on that material, using a lot of information that we would have about Native Americans at this time period, but having Freydis as a bad guy, because there's this altercation mm-hmm. between the Native Americans who also, like, they clearly have superior weapons because they have bows and arrows. They're able to yeah. use this, and so then you have these Viking dudes who are like, no, this is, like, too scary, and then Freydis is, like, totally man-shames them. She rips open her shirt, and she's got her bare breast, and she grabs a sword, and she's, like, beating her bare breast with her sword, and the Native Americans are like, what the fuck, and run away. Uh, and I think that's a really, that would be a great, if you're going to yeah. use a European narrative about Native Americans, why not have this kind of a, I mean, she's a really good bad guy. And yeah. I think as a counterpoint, it would be really interesting to have a pathfinder, Native American pathfinder, who's female, who's a little bit older, not like a young chick necessarily, mm-hmm. thinking about people could play her tattoo cardinal she was my favorite in dance with wolves mm. maybe such a little finger she declined marlon brando's best actor oscar back in mm-hmm. 73 uh, bedard who was actually the pocahontas speaking voice in the what is it called the disney movie these are sort of women who are now in yeah. their sort of their mature adult women they could be great mm-hmm. pathfinders navigating yeah. this trade communication and sure if you want a love interest Stellan Skarsgård could be a fantastic love interest from the Viking side, like a little bit of mature love. But if you wanted to have young, hot people without shirts, then you, you know, can bring in some of his children. You can bring some of his children and you can have like the Pathfinder ladies' children. There's some amazing young Native American actresses yeah. out there that could totally do this. And I do think that we would have to have at least an example of Karsefni's raging bull attacking mm-hmm. the Native Americans because it's, he's a bull and he freaks out. So my idea was essentially something relatively similar, but that I actually think it would be really interesting to even have a film where there's perhaps some kind of internal focused plot line, right? Maybe something about like tribal leadership and how that system is maybe changing in its own ways in terms of, you know, or if there's issues and they're yeah, migrating or something, but like something that's internal, mm-hmm. that that's the main focus. Right. And then these people show up and that's like a side Oh, that would be fantastic. That is just like, they're doing all these things and then they like go and like trade and then they're like, huh, this milk is really interesting. And then they go back to their lives. Right. Or one could even be like, one could have some kind of intertribal thing. And to go to with the old fashioned, like, oh, you're these weird people out here, but you have these weapons, like, let's join, let's ally. Right. Or even like, let's, I, let's just get some weapons. Right. Let's get some weapons. There's something very gratifying at this idea of the Europeans being like a complete side, like just like a, yeah. like, you know, a 10 minute oh, they're these people, and then just... Yeah, like, I want them to, like, barely... I want them to not have names and barely have speaking roles. Oh, that would be really something, wouldn't it? And, like, all of the named central characters are Native Americans. They'll all have actual names that are used at some point over the course of the movie. And, yeah, and then there's just these, like, occasional just, like, side interactions with, like, this nearby Viking settlement but, and you could even you could even go with the whole the viking settlement is like an overwintering place there's vikings there regularly yeah. we know them we're not antagonistic we have these trade things with them but we're not going to make a big deal maybe like things have been going on for a while and then it's like oh you know it's it's winter those norse guys are going to be like sticking around for a bit like we'll pop over for the afternoon like oh we know we're traveling maybe somebody's yeah. wounded we need shelter oh you know i know where we can get shelter you know maybe the norse aren't even there but their house is there yeah. and we're just going to yeah. use it which is they're not even unnamed they're not even yeah. there 
so yeah so I love that idea yes that's what I really want to do is like they're just like maybe they're like yeah so they're like there but like they don't matter it's not even really about the interaction they're just like this like marginal occasional part of people's lives in this region I think we can certainly both agree that like we want like the non-white savior narrative yes Yes. version of this I think that is the big takeaway from the way we have constructed these is that we want the non-white narrative, the non-white savior dude. Basically, we don't fuck ghosts. I don't even have a strong opinion about like the characters in these movies being, you know, conventionally hot and being shirtless or, you know, half butt cheek. That's fine. I just don't want I just don't want a movie that's about like, actually, we need a white man to save the Native Americans. Like that's that's really just what I don't want. That can lead into, finally, the estimatio, or rating, of the film from one to five, based on whatever purely subjective criteria we see fit. Well, I assess this as a two, because it is very satisfyingly bad. It is very Mm -hmm. bad, but it's very satisfying. I don't know why it's so satisfying. Maybe I sort of feel like I don't even need to feel at all bad about, like, trashing it, because clearly whoever made it didn't put any effort into it. (laughs) Or effort into the things that I think are important. But I love yeah. me a really good bad movie, and so this yeah. is definitely a sad. Not just good bad for me; it is satisfyingly bad. Yeah, and this was this was very fun to watch. I had a good time watching this with you in particular, and Stephen aggressively trying to not watch with us. Uh, <laughs> He's very talented. Yes. But I think ultimately, I think I'm going to go down to a 1.5. I agree with the good bad designation, but I think that I'm going to err on the low side, just especially in recognition of like the ways in which this film has a number of uh, or kind of perpetuates a number of both white supremacist or like at least white centered and uh, I would say to some extent misogynist narratives as well as just like there are some movies where I watch and I'm like okay I feel like maybe they read a Wikipedia article and then got drunk repeated the Wikipedia article to somebody else and then that's the movie. It's sort of sad that they take this 1987 Ophelas movie and kind of reproduce it crappily. I think, yeah, this movie is like, I think they did that. I think they just watched that movie. I don't think anyone involved in this movie has ever read anything. Very possible. So I think I'm going to give it a, a 1.5, but I have other examples of movies that which that I have given a 1.5 to, but that doesn't actually mean don't watch it. I think that this is a solid, good, bad movie. Have fun. Watch your friends. Make fun I, of the shirtless I, Carl, uh, Carl Urban. And I feel like it's a good movie for sort of being like, okay, let's create like a drinking game when there's something that's really yeah. like dismissive or misogynist, dismissive of women or misogynist, drink. When there's something that really feeds into problematic, ahistorical white supremacist narratives, take a drink. So listeners, please do that and then let us know after how drunk you got. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's pretty bad. Also, disclaimer, if you harm yourself, I do not accept any responsibility. Uh, <laughs> Neither do I. None. <laughs> Miji, first of all, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. And second, are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? Xavier University History Department website is the only real place. I do have Twitter, but I mostly post early morning photos from campus. And I'm not saying that I'm just trying to rub being an early riser into everyone's face, but... 
campus is just really pretty in the mornings. I also post about Xavier University Theater, our obsessed about the library's Twitter feed. So I really don't recommend anyone following me because you could just follow Xavier Theater and Library directly. <laughs> and you could just like get up at 5.30 a.m. and photograph pretty statues of Jesuits all by yourself. What is your Twitter handle? It's at M. Fonvesen, buddy. Okay. Very creative. The people could find follow you on Twitter. If they, <laughs> they could spell my name. <laughs> Yes. Well, the show, the show, it'll be in the show notes. It'll, it'll be given away. Sorry. Do you want me to send you links to like the YouTube clips of Ophelas, the Norwegian movie? Yeah, absolutely. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. And please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I would love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you again, you two, for joining me. This was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. It's always nice to meet other lovers of bad historical movies. Yes. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Thank you all. Take care of your livers watching this movie. <laughs>